This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring and is available for pre-order now. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead to get a little sneak peek. My guest today, Chad Robichaux. He is a former recon Marine, MMA fighter, and he went to Afghanistan during the withdrawal of U.S. forces in 2021 with a team and got out 17,000 people. Incredible story. His new book is called Saving Aziz. It is out January 17th. Be sure and pick that up. Now, without further ado, Chad Robichaux. Chad, what's up, man? Hey, man, how are you? Dude. Thanks for making it happen. Uh, thank you for being uh, understanding about pushing it an hour or two. So uh, oh, thank I you. Get it. I get it. Teeth are looking good, buddy. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, gosh. Yeah, 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 they were they were uh, not looking. They were kind of looking like my Louisiana roots this morning. Dang. How did how did you lose those things originally? And it's embarrassing. Oh, jujitsu. There you go. They, they kept, they kept chipping and crack breaking and jujitsu and it, you know, I had a lot of MMA fights, like 20, 20 pro fights. And so just over the years, they, they were pretty chipped up. So I had a, a friend of mine who's a cosmetic dentist, uh, said that put some veneers on there. I never wanted to do it. I didn't want to look like a televangelist. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, and then I, I broke the temporaries off yesterday eating a mango. Even the mango, <laughs> those mangoes will get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man. Nothing. Yeah, nothing super super sexy about it. <laughs> they get punched or kicked or anything. It was eating a mango. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> awesome, man, dude. I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, Marine MMA, eight deployments to Afghanistan, uh, meeting Aziz, uh, going through all this stuff, saving Aziz is the book. Um, I think we need to start at the beginning though. Um, yeah. The draw to the Marine Corps, like where did that come from, and how, what was your path into the Corps? Well, my, my dad was a Marine. Uh, we have 84 years of service in my family. Wow. And uh, my, my dad was the first Marine. Uh, we, you know, we did World War II, Korea. Uh, my dad was an infantryman in Vietnam. Wow. And uh, even though, you know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home because my dad probably never got help for the things he dealt with in Vietnam. Uh, he was always, the only thing I'd ever seen to make him happy was the fact that he was the United States Marine. Wow. And uh, that always really appealed to me. And I grew up in Southern Louisiana and bayous and swamps and, mud between my toes and I had a brother who was a year older than me and we'd always be out you know playing and and uh in the in the woods and and, and uh, I remember when the movie uh you know th- th- not the movie Navy SEALs but there was this documentary you probably seen uh from the Coronado uh yeah the one the Discovery Channel one the first Discovery Channel one back in the 90s yeah like, yeah there was one they followed a class through I forget what class number it was I think it was called class something but they had one before that in uh, like like right in the mid 90s Oh, recruiting yeah. one? Okay. Yeah. It was actually it was probably in the eighties. Yeah, it was in the eighties. Oh, then I think I know which one you're talking about. I think yeah. I might have it uh, actually on my <laughs> on my phone. I've been waiting for the right time to post it. Uh, is that the one <laughs> like, where they like, like running into the into the into the stra- that, down in a strand and they drop some dem- dem- demo? Yeah, I think that I think it's the right. Yep, I think so. I think I have that exact one. Do you, you remember? There's a part where they come on like to it's a bunch of bunkers or something like that. And the guy's yeah, fast yeah, rope yeah. and they run in and someone throws a smoke and they're like running through the smoke into the, that. I remember that one. That's and it. I think yeah, I have so it. Me, I think I'll have to post it. Yeah. Me and my brother seen that. And we we're like, man, you know, I was like, I want to do that. But I was like, I don't want to join the Navy. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it was my, 
it was the fact that my dad, you know, my dad was a Marine and I wanted to follow his footsteps. And so I, you know, I remember I, I was like 13 years old and like, what's like a Marine. I learned about Marine recon. And I started reading these books, uh, third recon and third force recon in Vietnam. And, and as a teenager, I became infatuated with that. And, and me and my brother, we were like lifelong athletes. And so we were running and swimming and about a year into that, my brother was, he was shot and killed. And, uh, it was just really devastating to me. He was, I was 14. He was 15 at the time. And what I had left, the family broke apart and I went to kind of a deep isolation, but I kept that focus and goal to join the Marines. And when I was about uh, 17 years old, I was living alone with my 20 year old sister and I probably wasn't going to graduate high school. And I went to a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown and really just told him my story and, and the situation I was in. And he helped me get in the Marine Corps, 1993, 17 years old without even a high school diploma. No and uh, so I signed the infantry contract. And, uh, and uh, that first year I tried out uh, the, back then it was called the RIP program mm -hmm. and tried out for the RIP program, recon indoctrination program. And uh, miraculously uh, I made it through at that young age and uh, became a recon Marine and, you know, so many great jobs in our military, but that's probably not, not any more that was more fitting for me, especially that time in my life. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Marine Corps boot camp. That's like the like ultimate rite of passage. You know, everybody knows about it. Everybody's heard about it. Um, and it's a draw. And I think some, I think everybody's got that draw, but some people listen to it and follow it. And then, you know, some people don't, but in a lot of societies, yeah, you had to do something like that to become a part of the tribe, you know, and yeah. the Marine Corps boot camp is like, that is the that's that's the thing of the Spartans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, what what happened to your brother? So my brother was uh was with his he had another stepbrother from another side of our family that was 11 years old and they got to argument and my brother had a fire poker and the other kid picked up a, a 20 gauge shotgun and they were uh so we'd never know if he, pulled, he shot him on purpose or just it went off but it was you know point blank range in the chest and he he died instantly oh. and uh. And so, like I said, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home and, and, uh, you know, something like that happening, just my, my, my mother couldn't handle the loss of a kid. My dad didn't want to deal with it. He went work overseas. My mother went live with her family. And, uh, you know, and so at a young age of, of 15 years old, I was living with my 20 year old sister who was going to college and, and, uh, working and trying to go to high school. And like I said, I would, would have not have graduated high school. And I, I look at, I get, I get the chance to go speak at Marine Corps boot camp for now, eight years now wow. I've, I've spoken to. Spoken to 450,000 troops in the last 12 years. And my where I go most is Marine Corps boot camp. And every quarter I speak to these kids and I'm like, you know, when they come here and they stand on these yellow footprints, the opportunity that I don't even think they realize it is, but you know, I think back at my time standing on those yellow footprints at Marine Corps boot camp and, and you had this chance to start your own trajectory in life. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, if your dad was rich or poor, or if you lived in the trailer park or the projects, you have a chance right there to, to, to change your own trajectory. And, and I, I'm thankful that at young age 17, I, I knew it was an opportunity for me to leave where I was coming from and have something better for myself and my future family. And, and I really just like, I don't, again, I don't know how I had that maturity, but I really embraced that. And, uh, and I, I think I had this, I was just in my mind, locked clad, like clad in my mind, like I, I want to be a recon Marine. And, yeah. and, uh, I never thought about how, how hard it was to be if I was prepared. I just, what, what I wanted to do. And I was going to, I was committed to do that. And, to fill that, that goal that my brother and I had started. Yeah. Did you go to San Diego or did you go to uh, Paris Island? I went to San Diego. My dad went to San Diego. Both my sons actually went to San Diego. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Both my sons are Marine. One's an Afghanistan veteran as well. Wow. No and, uh, way. There's a lot of international stuff I do now with me. And yeah, it's uh, and uh, so San Diego is kind of, you know, the family tradition 
Jeez. <laughs> wow. Do you remember if you had any uh, drill instructors that had the bubble on that you knew were recon? Did you see anybody walking around and catch that? Or did you know what to look for? I, I didn't because uh, recon Marines don't typically get to be drill instructors because it's, they don't typically get to do B billets, which is like drill instructor recruiting because yeah. uh, uh, embassy duty because the Marine Corps put so much money. They want them to keep them there. And uh, but there was a guy who was uh, what's called him a quiz. Uh, marine combat instructor of water survival so he was really big in the water and i and somehow i can't i don't recall how but i expressed to him that i want to be a recon marine he you remember him really saying okay you need to get like first class swim qual or wsq and boot camp which is like the high swim qual so that way you don't have to do it when you get to the fleet it's immediate like qualification yeah uh, to be able to go to brc basically recon school so i remember he helped me uh, to make sure, because in, in boot camp, they don't care. They're processing people yeah, through, yeah. so they don't care if you get that qual. <laughs> and so this drill instructor really uh, set me up by making sure that I got that high swim qual and was able to go take that NDOC and get and be qualified to go to BRC, oh, basic awesome. re recon course, which by the, by the way, back then it was it was in Coronado next door to Buds. Okay, yeah, yeah, right across the street. Yep, yeah. I remember it well. It's not there anymore? No, well, they still do the third phase and fifth phase there, but okay. it, uh, they built an amazing compound in Campillon oh, at nice. the School of Infantry. Okay. And, uh, and so they have this, you know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of like the recon community now because like they have this incredible facility. They have a pipeline so the kids could sign up at, uh, at, at through the recruiter and they, oh, cool. the pipeline's a year long. So they go to, they go to what's called BR, uh, they go to Martin Marines Away Recon Training, then basic recon prep course. BRC basic recon course, and then they go to pre pre scuba, combat dive, jump, uh, seer school, and then a free fall, uh, free fall. So when they show up at their unit after your pipeline, oh wow, they're like ready to go. And uh, so now they're you know they're all schooled up. Nice. And then uh, and then the corpsman, the SART corpsman, the Navy SART corpsman, they do all of that. In addition to that, they do the year long eighteen Delta. Yeah. So everybody's like everybody shows up to the command like spun up ready ready to deploy. That is serious. And what uh, what jump school do you guys go to now? Uh, still Army Jump School, but okay. uh, we have our own. I went to uh, uh, Military Free Fall, the Army. I went to Army MFF, uh, Yuma, and Yuma. Yeah, yeah I did, me too. Uh, I did brag for a week, and then, yeah, I did the same one. What year did you go? Ninety nine. Oh, that was two thousand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So a year report. Yeah. Then, and uh, matter of fact, I just went recently back there and spoke. Uh, I, I did a speaking event and the guy's like, Hey, do you still have your, your plaque? And I'm like, man. And, uh, and he took me to the same pattern. I'm like, it was a toilet seat. And, and he said, <laughs> and we had like, we are the shit on a no way. And, uh, and, and he took me back to that same parallel office, the same one you went to. And it's yeah. still there. All the plaques are on the wall. And my plaque was there. And I remember looking at it. Cause a couple of guys from our class that had been killed and looking at and snaps of pictures of it. But yeah, it's all that's still there the same way as when, when you went in 2000, okay, but uh, Marine Corps, Marine Corps has their own now. And, okay. Uh, God, it's, they did their own deal. Did, um, yeah, I, remember we, I don't know if we even have a plaque for our, our class. We, we lost two guys in the course, uh, oh, an instructor and a student. They, uh, they hit heads, you know, like anyway, it was, yeah, we'd go search for them in the desert. And, and we had one jump after that, we, you know, night combat equipment, the hey-ho thing, whatever that last one is you need. So we had to, I think we took a stand down of a good week and a half, safety stand down, two weeks maybe. So we had to find the bodies then do the whole memorial and then the safety stand down investigation. And then we had to go back for that last one. Um, yeah. But, uh, and what do you guys do uh, the dive school? Uh, we have a uh, Panama City. Okay. Um, it's a week dive school. Um, you know, open, open circuit and then closed circuit, um, yeah. for, for me, you know, lower five, mark 25, but 
not now they're getting on the bigger and better equipment. And oh, really? Yeah. I know people ask me questions and I'm kind of like, oh, I'm a little dated, you know, right now. So unless I'm researching it for a book, you know, my, my information is going to be a tad bit, uh, tad bit dated. Um, did your dad talk about, uh, Vietnam at all to you growing up? Never did. He yeah. never did. Uh, he was just, a. Uh, he would get pretty, you know, pretty fired up about the, the Marine Corps and about infantry, but he would never really get into Vietnam. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, he was a lot of alcohol, a lot of physical abuse in our family. And he was just a very violent, angry man. And, uh, and ultimately he died at 63 years old. Uh, I think all, you know, he just lived a terrible lifestyle, drinking, smoking. Um, you know, I, I didn't know at the time he hit it well, but drugs and, uh, you know, just, but, um, you know, we, we actually had some pretty good reconciliation in my, in my other book, I know that we talked about this one today, saving Aziz, but an unfair advantage to talk about that re restoration in our life. And ultimately getting, you know, I became a Christian and ultimately was able to pray with him at the end of his life. And, and we had that reconciliation at the end of our lives together. So yeah. uh, end of his life right. together. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty, it was, it ended up being, you know, a rough, a rough life, but a good ending. Yeah. So. Yeah. How about, um, uh, was your grandfather Korea, Vietnam? Is that, uh, did, sorry, not maybe not, World War II. Did, um, did he talk about World War II and Korea? It was all? my uncle. My, my, uncle it was God. my grandfather's brother who Got did, who did, uh, both his brothers, one did Korea, one did World War II. Okay. And they both talked about it a lot. Uh, they, yeah. they, it was opposite of my dad. They, okay. they were really you know, talking about it, especially, uh, especially Korea. Um, you know, obviously we heard the stories how cold it was, but talking about how cold it was and yeah. both of them, both of them were army infantry. Okay. Uh, Jeez. So. Is that what stands out most? The, the cold or is it? Yeah, what else? So you always talk about how cold yeah. it was and you know, we're from Gosh. Louisiana. So, Good point. <laughs> so uh, Good what do you remember, uh, the, them talking, saying about world war two, do you do with the Pacific or, uh, what, what theater they were in? You know, I, I actually at the time I didn't. Uh, I remember him talking a lot about it, but at the time I didn't know enough to ask. You know what it was, mm -hmm. so I don't know. And there's a book. There's, there's a book about it, and I'm trying to find it. There was a book written about my uh, my uncle that was in World War II, uh, and he's a Roby show and uh, about his unit. And so oh. I'll, I'm trying to find and locate this book. I've just heard about it. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. And I'm you know super interested in finding it. So I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah, track, gotta track that one down for sure. Yeah, uh, it's about my, you know, my family's kind of military heritage starting, uh, and uh, you know, up up until now, my my youngest son, my my oldest son did six years. My youngest son got out because he chose not to get the vaccine and got a other than honorable discharge, which is a, you know, one of the things he really he was like, I don't want to get it, and I, and I supported him uh, not getting it. I wouldn't have got it my, myself, and and uh, and so yeah, he he chose to get out, and that's how family service ended. Yeah. That is crazy. Is there a, I heard there was some like, well, people trying anyway, retroactively, because now you don't have to, right? And now, right. but they're not making it, they're not grandfathering anybody that got out or refused yeah. before that, I guess, because... Yeah, that was that was what I was a little bummed about that bill that they had passed. You know, they were, they were able to get it passed and not do future, but they didn't think about the 7,000 people that had already been put out and, uh, and you know, going back and, and making things right for them. And so hopefully, you know, um, this, this new Congress will, will do the right thing and and help reinstate their, reinstate their, uh, yeah. their benefits. And, and not only that, but, uh, some of them, I know a lot of them still want the opportunity to serve. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and my son would probably go back and he was an active duty, but uh, he would more likely go back into reserves. Yeah. Um, and it's just time out. So, yeah. man, that's wild. What's uh, so what was your path like then from boot camp up to September 11th? Where did you, uh, where'd you go? What'd you do? I mean, I was, at, I was at multiple recon units and, uh, and, you know, I went in and it sounds like I was in, you know, 
similar yeah. time frame to you, but I went in in 93. So from 93 to 2001 was lots of training, mm-hmm. uh, lots of, lots of training and, uh, and, and lots of schools. And we did what's called JTF six missions down in the border and, uh, and do a lot of counter drug operations, but during a peacetime military, you know, we're itching for something to happen. And unfortunately I came at a cost of 9-11 and when 9-11 happened, I was a, I was a, a free fall team leader. I was a, the sergeant at third force recon company. And, uh, you know, I knew at that time, like with my job, like, man, you know, life's about to change. Like we're, yeah. you know, the world's about to change and my life's going to be much different. And, and I was itching to go. I thought we we're going to deploy right away. And, uh, and I didn't. And I was, I remember just like the steam, like just came out of yeah. my sails. Cause I was like, so itching to go. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, I had opportunity, a very fortunate opportunity to try out for a JSOC task force and, uh, and, and go work with, with, uh, the, you, you guys' premier unit in SW. And I spent four years there oh, nice. uh, and, and as an AFO, advanced force operator, and doing all the clandestine logistics to put our assaulters on target to capture or kill bad guys. And uh, wow. and uh, I never even knew that a job existed when um, before. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I did this assessment selection, got got selected, and uh, was one of six six recon marines that got to go to that command. And uh, probably one of the you know, things I'm most proud of in military service to get to serve in that command yeah. and do that job uh, and be entrusted with that, you know, that level of responsibility it was, it was an incredible experience. Wow. It probably was going to come in handy later to get these guys out of Afghanistan. I mean, run yeah. and learn how to do all that sort of thing. Doing singleton operations and, and doing all the clandestine logistics, building a, you know, building a cover and a reason to be in a certain place and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, those things, yeah, definitely came in handy with, uh, you know, with, the operation that we did in Afghanistan yeah. and some of the work that we've done in, you know, in Ukraine, yeah. uh, over the last year. And so those, those experiences and skill sets definitely, uh, carried over. Yeah, man, you have been busy. Jeez. So yeah. where were you on September 11th? So I was September 11th. I was in Louisiana. And I remember when I remember, uh, uh, turning on the news and I was sitting on my couch and, and, uh, and my wife was like trying to get my attention and I'm like, you gotta come sit. So she can't, I'm telling her she had to come sit next to me and she sat right next to me and, remember just watching watching the television and trying to process like i mean I, I was i would just remember processing it like this this is intentional i remember just thinking that like this is an accident a plane didn't accidentally crash into these buildings and when and when a second plane hit we all i think everybody knew unquestionably at that time yeah. like we were, we were we were under attack and i remember like i don't know if you remember going to your unit but i remember going to the unit and no one was like no one was like oh my gosh that wasn't a everyone was like Hey, what's up, sir? Like, let's go make this. Let's do it. Make this happen. Let's go do it. I mean, yeah. the unit was like just chomping at the bit, and uh, you know, it was. Uh, but uh, you know, we, we I didn't get to go right away. Yeah. First, first, first force went, and then second force went, and we augmented second force. Our unit augmented second force, and uh, and then and then we uh, we got allocated to Iraq. Okay. Uh, and so so I was like going. To, I was scheduled for deployment to Iraq. I started doing a workup. Uh, and then that's when I got picked up on a task force. And, uh, and I remember my, my uh, I had worked with this guy, Foster Harrington for 10 years. We had been multiple units together, we went to recon school together. And he was just one, one of my best friends, served him a wedding. He was my assistant team leader. I was a team leader, uh, and we're doing the workup for Iraq. And then I left to go over to, to the task force. And he ended up taking our team and uh, a month in the, in Iraq, he was, he was shot and killed. And, uh, I remember just like, that being the first big loss that I took and just it was, it was devastated. And I, I was in Afghanistan already. So, uh, my wife going to his funeral and, and, and I couldn't be there. And, you know, she had told me how his, his, uh, he had a stepson, a son that he was, he was about to get married and, and adopt this kid, the little kid throwing himself in the coffin. Like uh, you were supposed to be my daddy. Like, and uh, 
that was the first big loss that I had. And, uh, you know, so that was brutal, brutal. Yeah. That scene has played out, you know, so many times over the last 20 years. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, it, uh, yeah, we were deployed already. So we thought for sure we were going, we thought we are so lucky. We were already, cause we were, it was two weeks into my second deployment. And so we're in Guam and we're like, all right, we're going for sure. And yeah, no. Well, I mean, we went, but we like while we were in the air, they switched us instead of going to Afghanistan. We ended up going to uh, to Kuwait and taking over for SEAL Team Three. Those guys ended up going into Afghanistan. We took over the shipboarding operations, which before September 11th were well, it was pretty cool to do. Some you know something yeah. real. Uh, after September 11th, that's not what you wanted to be. You wanted to be in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But then everybody else at home thought they were going to miss it. You know, everybody was like, "Oh, we missed it. I can't believe it," because everything from Vietnam up to then had been a flashpoint. You know, if you weren't right. if you weren't at Desert One, if you weren't in uh, at Grenada, if you weren't at Panama, if you weren't at in Mogadishu, like you missed those flashpoints. Like. And it went to years. Yeah, and then <laughs> it was not. A, yeah, it ended up not being a. Uh, you know, it, you you were gonna get after it if you stayed in. You know. I mean, I would never. I would never thought. I'm, I'm itching to go. I would have never thought. Not only am I gonna get to go eight times, but my son's gonna get to go too. How crazy is that? I mean, yeah, right. And there's there's a bunch of different families who have had that happen. I mean, it's yeah. it is crazy. He could have. I mean. Yeah, this just thinking about that timeline, 20 years. I mean, you could yeah. have have not been born on 9-11 and still, still gone born. there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Um, when did you get into MMA along the way? I, I started jiu-jitsu when I was five. I started nice. judo and traditional jiu-jitsu when I was five years old. And, and in 1995, I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, uh, and then I never desired to be like an MMA fighter or anything like that. I just, it was kind of natural progression of competing. Uh, and I was just been a competitor my whole life. And it was just the next way to compete at, some, at one point. I think I did my first MMA fight in 97, my first pro one in 99. I did it on a side as, 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 while I was in the military. And, and uh, you know, and then when I came home, so I did my aid deployments to Afghanistan, um, you know, terrible uh, end to our deployments. We had a, you know, a, a compromise. I was, uh, I was, uh, we had 12 of our teammates killed, two Americans and 10 Afghans and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people probably don't think the Afghan, you know, things a big deal, but to me it was, these are my brothers. So that's who I, that's who I lived with, you know, and, uh, that was my teammates and, and, uh, you know, I believe they died for me. And, uh, so you know, I had, I had already been under a lot of anxiety and stress and, uh, and the wheels really began to fly off for me, came home, uh, after that last deployment was diagnosed with PTSD was I had already switched from being an active duty to a, having a con direct contract with the command mm. that was at. So I was still working in the same capacity, but as a direct contract. So I was right out of the program and I was done. And, uh, wow. and you know, the only thing I knew how to do besides that job was MMA. So I, I, I dove into, I didn't like the pills and medicine and all that stuff. And I dove into those mats and then start training and I opened the school and ended up with like three years out of thousand students. And, I got back to fighting and won a world title. I was ranked number six as a flyweight, number 15 as a bantamweight. So surface-wise, it looked like I was doing really successful, but, uh, but man, I was not getting healthy, and I really spiraled. And at the end of that three-year period, uh, you know, while MMA is something I love and I'm still a fourth-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I still train, uh, I was not getting better. And yeah. uh, I ended up almost divorcing my wife after, you know, uh, and uh, separating from my, my wife. We moved into two separate apartments and, and, uh, and, uh, while we're, while we're separated, um, 
we uh, I had fought this big fight on Showtime, and after that MMA fight was over, it was, it was Showtime and an event called Strike Force. Mm-hmm. And people that are MMA fans might uh, yeah. at the time it was UFC owned it. It was the second biggest show in the world, and wow. and uh, I fought in the Chota Center in front of like ten thousand people. And I, out of my out of my wins, I have eight. I was eighteen and two professionally, and, and uh, seventeen of my wins are by submission. One is by decision, and that was this fight. I would like back and forth with this kid in Berkeley de Leon. Every round he knocked me down. Every round I knocked him down. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't finish him with a submission. And at the end, I remember it was a split decision. They called one, one judge called for him, one judge called for me, and the third judge called for me. And I was like, I couldn't even remember what happened because we had been hit so many times. But, but I remember when, um, when I won, my hand being raised, and like all these people are screaming. It was like ten thousand people in this. Tim, Tim, my friend, I think you know Tim too. Tim Kennedy was fighting that night, and oh, wow. we had so many people there. It's like ten thousand people are screaming. It's like super deafening and then I, my mind just kind of like went blank and i'm standing there just thinking like all these people here and not one of them was my wife because my wife and wasn't at that fight she'd always been in my fights before and, and i remember like thinking like I'm, i just fought so hard to win this stupid fight and my record and i'm like not fighting for my my family and i went home like with my head down like just super like depressed and uh, i mean people were trying to talk to me like you won and i remember tim lost a close fight to jacare and we had our after fight party together and uh and I was just like, I just wanted to go home. And I went home by myself and I'm laying in my bed and I'm my mind spinning. And I remember thinking like, m- my family might be sad without me, but they would be better off. Right. It, uh, I was thinking like, I- I'm not like, I'm destroying my family. My wife and kids are like going through this hard time because of me, they'd be sad without me, but they'd be better off. And, you know, you and I both know that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 20 something veterans every single day. And but I had made a decision I was going to take my life and I, and, um, and I sit in my closet and I had my, I had a Glock 22, 40 caliber pistol. And I, I put it to my head and, uh, I put my family pictures on the floor around me and I put it to my head and I, and I, I tried to build up the courage to pull that trigger. But I believe this one thought that was, I believe it was divine. Uh, this one thought would like overwhelm me. Like who is going to find me? Like somebody's going to hear the gunshot. You're not going to show up somewhere. Like someone's going to find you. And the only person that had a key to my apartment besides me was my oldest son, Hunter, who was 13 at the time. And uh, the thought of him finding me that way was uh, enough to pump the brakes, but I was in such a bad place um, that I was back at it like hours or next morning. And uh, there was one morning I was in that closet and I heard a knock at my door and, uh, and I wasn't going to answer it, but my wife announced herself and I kind of panicked when she did. And I hid that gun under a blanket Well, she was my closet. She would never came in there, but probably that level of shame was just, I hid that pistol and I went to the door and I was, it sounds, may sound twisted or stupid, but I was so mad at her for interrupting me, killing myself that I just like started screaming at her and yelling at her. Like, what are you doing here? She's not a very calm arguer, by the way, but <laughs> in this moment, like she was like super calm and she was like, you know, we had met when we were 17 and 18 years old. So she saw me do all this stuff like BRC, the schools and deployments, training for fights and cutting weight, the discipline like that we have, you know, in, in these occupations, she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And uh, there's no probably no more soul cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. And she was absolutely right. I've been successful at professional things, but when it came to the most important things in my life, like being a husband, being a father, being a young 17 year old kid that I was saying raised his hand and made a commitment to do something important, I quit quitting all those things, including my will to live. And and uh, I pretty made a pretty radical decision in that moment to get back on track and pull my life back together. And I I. The MMA environment for me, while it's, it could be healthy for some people, I believe, you know, teach like holistic fitness all the time, like mind, body, spirit, social, the pillars of resiliency. And I believe you have to be, jujitsu brings mental uh, mental strength and, and physical strength and a social connection, but, you know, it doesn't have that spiritual pillar. And 
and, uh, and, and while I think it was a healthy environment, it was, it was a really enabling environment for me because I surrounded myself with people that told me everything I wanted to hear and not the hard things that I needed to hear. And I needed some people to hold me accountable to getting well. And so my wife had been going to this church where we were separated uh, and I wasn't interested in God or church or anything, but she, uh, she, she, uh, I knew she knew people outside of my circle. So I said, is there some man at this church that can hold me accountable to making some changes and getting, getting back on track. And I met this man named Steve Toth and, uh, he, we met at a Starbucks coffee shop and I remember meeting him and I had written a five paragraph order, like an ops order. If I was gonna put my life back together, I really wanted him to show it to my wife. Cause now I'm trying to win her back. Cause I'm very goal oriented. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to show you this and you're going to show it to my wife and everything's going to be fine. I remember sitting across from him and showing this plan. And uh, he looked at his plan without even reading it. And he told me I was going to fail. I remember being like super offended because uh, like you didn't even look at it and you're telling me I'm going to fail. But he tapped in a paper and he said, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And, and in my life, I tried, I'd been in medication. I'd been through the VA, all these programs and I had financial success and professional success, all this stuff. Nothing had really changed uh, anything. Some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad, but none of those things really changed my situation. And so in that moment, I made a decision to uh, become a Christian. I surrendered my life to Christ. Beyond that decision, Steve mentored me for about an entire year on biblical living. And uh, and what that really did for me was it didn't, I mean, obviously I still had anxiety, depression. I still got mad and the temper tantrums, all that stuff. But I was able to have a blueprint to respond differently with these biblical principles. And, uh, and I started to gain control of my life. And what I really discovered was all these bad things that happened to me in my childhood, Afghanistan, losing friends and all that stuff, as bad as those things were, those things didn't lead me to a closet with my pistol man. What led me there was the choices that I made in response to those things. And I, and I realized, you know, I still had uh, control of the choices I made. And, uh, and now this biblical mentorship was giving me a good set of decisions to make in response to these things. And so through that intentionality, I, I began to find, you know, restoration and, and my own anxiety and depression. I found hope again. Uh, and by the way, restoration of my marriage, because we've been married 27 years now. My kids are all married. Uh, two of them went to Bible college. Two of them were Marines. I got uh, two big grandbabies and one in the way. So we have amazing, you know, family that I'm super proud of. And But I found hope again. Uh, and I also found, uh, I think what we all seek most and why we put on that uniform is, is purpose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when when I was on active duty and then when I stayed in my com the command to do that job, I felt like I had a tremendous sense of purpose. So I was, my whole world, my whole identity was tied to that purpose. And, and uh, you know, the problem with those these jobs is, it's great to have purpose, but when that, that job gets pulled away and our purpose is tied to that, our identity is tied to that, and it really is a, a very hollow spot that we we find something to fill it with and nothing will ever feel the same. And and, and, uh, and so that lack of purpose, I think, is one of the biggest things that guys that end up where I was at and this veteran suicide thing and all this anxiety and depression is that void of purpose. And for me, when I found uh, found this kind of new life and this new direction, I felt like I found my purpose again. And uh, really it was to share what I discovered with others that were dealing with the same thing I had. So I felt like it was, it's not like I wanted to start a nonprofit and help veterans. It was like I had found the cure of cancer and, and I had to share it, right. If you're dying of cancer and you get the cure, you have to share it. And, and so that manifested in the founding of a uh, mighty Oaks foundation and the main work that I do today. Yeah, man. You know, after in reading uh, saving Aziz, that was the thing that really uh, stood out to me was this, uh, this message of hope. 
uh, that yeah. was kind of it was kind of woven through, and that that really stood out to me and differentiated uh, it. Obviously, it's an, an incredible story in and of itself, but to, to to frame it in a way where you don't directly say it, but you feel the hope from it, that was that really made made this book stand out to me. And I don't have it right now in front of me because it hasn't come out yet. Uh, yeah. I got I got an early copy. Yeah, I got an early. Uh, I think you sent it to me. You sent PDF or however I read it. Yeah, PDF. Um, yeah so I I did. Yours that. got sent in the mail today, actually. You got oh, nice, that. awesome, awesome, because it comes out on the seventeenth. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, thank you so much, but I, I ordered it as well. So I have it all too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it comes out January 17th. Um, but man, it was a, when, when your wife interrupted you in the closet, then how long was it before you went and sat down at Starbucks with, uh, with that guy? What were your, what were you after, what were your initial, uh, actions after your conversation with her in the, in the doorway or wherever you had that, that conversation in the apartment? It was probably like a week because I was like, you know, my response was, you know, she left, she left and she left me there. Um, but I, m- I remember just telling her like, like, I want to fix this. Like, I'm going to do that character and work ethic you're talking about. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to put the same work ethic in to fixing this. Even if I have to sleep on the back porch, you don't have mm-hmm. to let me back in. Uh, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to put the work in and, and uh, I, I, and again, you know, I just didn't know how to do it. So I knew I needed support, but I was really worried and no, no offense to any people in my life at that time, but I had systematically pushed accountability out of my life. And I was mm. extremely, and people told me what I didn't want to hear. I was yeah, as, as a jujitsu black belt at the school, like, you know, anytime you're in, when you're in the military, you have a lot of accountability, but when you get out, if you establish yourself, it's pretty mm. easy to live life. You know, I'm sure where, where you are in your position in your life right now, you know, you know, you're you're very successful. You have the ability to not have accountability in your life. Oh. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm in the same position right now. I could, but I choose to intentionally put accountability in my life. Yeah. And that was, that was something I knew I needed at a time. Man. So during that week, do you, did you worry you were going to end up back in that, in that closet with that pistol? Um, what did you do during that week before you, you sat down at that Starbucks? I did. I did. Uh, you know, I was really bad. I was really battling that week. I, me- I remember clearly, like I was really battling that week with like, I'd be in moments of like, Nope. Uh, cause, cause I'm very like all in or all out personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's my the, you know, wrestler background. Like you either, you're either on diet or you're like mm-hmm. killing the buffet, like <laughs> you're like some all in or all out meant personality. And so I'm like, I, I would, I would be like in these moments to where like hundred percent committed I'm in. And then, then I'd be like, I'd realized the amount of work I had in front of me. And, and, uh, and, and I, and I also didn't know that I had to, I didn't believe in myself at that time that I had the ability to repair the damage that was done. Cause I had caused so much damage. I, I had an affair. Uh, I never physically harmed my, my, my wife and kids, but like, I mean, I always talk about this one moment where I came back from Afghanistan and my daughter's having a birthday and, and, uh, and she was so excited that I was gonna be home for a birthday. And, and she didn't like the icing on her cake, like something super simple. And she said something about it and I, like picked up my little girl's birthday cake and picked up her cake and threw it against the wall and the shorter birthday. And, and just like, I was just so out of control. Like, me and my wife were arguing in the car. We couldn't even tell you probably five minutes later we were arguing about, but the kids are in the backseat of our car and I start, we're in traffic and I start trying to kick the gear shift off the car. So we're stuck in traffic. Like, I mean, what I put my family through was like, you know, it's embarrassing to say, but that's just where I was at that time. And, and, uh, and, and I was just so out of control and I had caused so much damage and my wife had lost so much trust and, and faith in me, like to think that, me gaining her trust back and her confidence back ever again. Like it just felt like an impossible goal that I was taking on. So that would lead me back to, man, what am I going to put myself through this for to end up right back where we are? I tried so many times and I'm going to, I'm going to let them down again. You know, I'm going to have a, I'm going to 
you know, not be able to deal with her, uh, rejecting me or turning her back on me because she can't deal with my attitude. And so I'm going to turn to another woman. Like, you know, I just didn't feel like I had that in me. And so it lead me back to that. And then when I met with Steve, you know, I just really wanted, I mean, I was so manipulative at the time. Like I really wanted him to be able to be the one to convince her that I was. So that's why I wrote, took my time, wrote this big life plan. And uh, I knew that's what she wanted to see. She wanted to see some efforts out of me. But the problem with Steve was, you know, Steve never served in the military. He wasn't an MMA fighter or anything in common, but he is his, the one gift he had to help me was his ADT, ADD, like really bad. And uh, like, I mean, like this guy still to this day, we're friends and we'll go eat at a restaurant and he like grabs his keys and runs across the parking lot because walking's like a waste of time. And why that was a gift is because I was like so manipulative and wanted to like convince him of this. He didn't have the time or patience to hear hear me trying to manipulate him. He was just like, yeah, this plan you have, is not going to work. Like, like he was just so like, he was just so short with me. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and he was just really bold with me and, uh, and, and no one had really been that bold to me in a long time, like really like put me in my place yeah. and, uh, and challenged me. And, uh, and really made me look at kind of look at like, I, I was, I was my own worst critic, but other people were not saying it. Yeah. So, uh, so for somebody, another man, who I respected because I immediately respected him to come in and tell me the hard things really was the challenge that I needed. And, uh, it really put, you know, set a precedence in my life. How I want to challenge other men uh, who are going through similar situations. Yeah. Man. So that first deployment then to Afghanistan, you did eight deployments and they're all, yeah. all to Afghanistan. But, but, you know, but um, I mean, you know, when you had that unit, a okay. JSOC unit, yeah. short, like three to three to four months and then come back and you're home for three or four months and you're back out again. Yeah. Yeah, still, sure. that's a good, that's a good run. That's still, that's a good run. Uh, well, I never like to compare it to the guys that the guy that was at 82nd yeah. Airborne, a 15 month deployment. Like seriously, gosh, those guys that were there in, uh, I forget what unit it is. I put it, I wove it into the first novel, actually. Uh, the guys that were over there in 2004 Iraq and they thought they were coming home and they had sent the guys home already to, you know, to, to get ready and accept everybody coming back. Uh, the main, the main body coming back. They were guys that they were at the airfield, I think. And they were yeah. loading pallets, getting ready to go. And then, and they'd already been there for either 12 or 13 months, whatever it was. But then they got the word there that, no, you're going to stay another four. Yeah. And they had guys come back then. Like, I think, were, I think some of them were from Alaska and they flew back to Iraq. And some of those guys didn't make it home after they thought they were home. They reunited with their families. Hey, we made it. Oh, no, you're going back for another four they go back and then don't make it home. I mean, just yeah. The army would even send guys home and leave. Like, yeah, I remember. <laughs> go back and you get to go home for a week and come back. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's wild. Um, what changed over the time then over those eight deployments? Do you remember looking at kind of the geopolitical situation, or did you think of things in strategic terms, or did you think long term, or did you just think tactically? Here we are. This is my first time here. I'm here for four months. Here's my mission, uh, and I'm going to execute. Like, what 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 were you thinking there? Uh, what and what was the changes towns? between that first one? and that yeah. last one i lived out i lived out in town so i lived out in uh you know i lived in kabul i always i always had a place in kabul and then i lived in you know jabad and, and jalalabad and, and Badakut, and i lived uh close to the tarkin border wow. i lived uh i lived across the across the border in, in peshawar and islamabad and was up in the northeast frontier province quite a bit wow and so just over the over those years just i mean not only seeing the geography change like i mean when i remember first going to kabul like there were street vendors everywhere. And, and it, you still had like, I mean, 2000, 2003, 2004, like it was, it was so much different than, than they start clearing the streets and, 
and uh, the military, you know, started really controlling uh, Kabul. And then you'd see the not just the geography change and the, and the structure of the city, infrastructure of the city change, but the people change, the way people dress, the way people, mm-hmm. you know, just carried themselves. Everything changed in Kabul over, over that period of time. And then, um, and then you know, our ba- our basis, right? Our basis went from, you know, where where Bagram was simply a giant fob to uh, with, with Hes- you know, Cos- uh, Hesco barriers and uh, Constantino wire to uh to being like pretty much a city mm-hmm. uh and my son went there it was like oh my gosh like there's volleyball tournaments and movie theaters <laughs> like uh, over the years and i mean uh, yeah so i mean kabul is like what changed most but even even places like you know as you moved out from kabul things things continue to change over the years but i mean you know at least my years there up to 2007 you know once you got once you got an hour outside of kabul it was Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful country. I remember the mountains and we're flying in those helos, like looking to your right, looking to your left and just seeing, you know, the mountains and it being so beautiful, seeing the sunrise and the sunsets from those helicopters. And uh, I think we might have spent some time at the same place, uh, the Ariana, maybe spend some time yes, at yeah. the at the Ariana, yeah. uh, at the bar there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but across border, like in, in, in Pakistan, I mean, you had the, you know, all three of the mountain ranges hit there, Himalaya Kush, uh, Karakom and Himalaya Mountains all meet in one place. And that's, that is the most beautiful place I've ever been in the world of, you know, Nanga Parbat, which is Killer Mountain. That's the second highest yeah. to K2. Uh, I mean, there's the Indus River, like so, so beautiful. Yeah. And people in the, in, uh, you know, backpacking around Europe in the late sixties, early seventies, they would take a, a trip to, to Kabul to go, uh, to go see some, uh, an exotic locale. They take a little break from seeing things in Europe and it was quite common, uh, to go and, and, uh, and go to Kabul during, during that time. And of course things got, <laughs> things got a little rough later, but, uh, uh, but it is a beautiful, a beautiful country. Um, how is the, uh, the continuity? So when, when, uh, and when you first meet Aziz, what, what deployment are you on when you, when you meet him and, uh, are you meeting new people every time? Or are you dropping back into the kind of the, the same, uh, networks that we were working the last time or what was that like? Yeah, that's what made my deployments a little bit unique is that, uh, I didn't have separate, all eight of my trips to Afghanistan were not uh, separate deployments, separate operations. It was the same one. Uh, so the continuity was, was just uh, continuous and uh, and it was just a you know, continuation of the same operation. I was even when I was back stateside, part of what was going on while I was mm-hmm. going. So the people that were leaving me and our rotating teams, uh, you know, uh, I, I would rotate out, uh, started working uh, side by side with uh, a steel named Dave Lamone. Uh, I don't know if you know Dave, uh, but he, he, uh, he, he was, uh, rot- ended up being rotating out with me. And so, um, you know, so Dave and I, you know, both became close to Aziz, but Aziz was started off as an interpreter. He, uh, he and he, he came back, uh, he had fled the the Taliban in exile because he started teaching English when he was eight. By 14, he was teaching his whole neighborhood. So he's teaching like, uh, he started, he learned English on his own when he was eight and he started teaching at four, 14 and he was teaching like 800 people in Kabul and got caught by the Taliban. And, uh, and then he fled in exile. He got in a physical altercation with the Taliban fled, went to Abu Dhabi or Dubai. He was in Dubai. And then when, when 9-11 happened and U.S. military came, his dad said, you need to come back. Here's your opportunity. And he said, I want to go back and, and fight alongside the U.S. military because I want to, I want to free Afghanistan. I want to have my future daughters uh, to be able to be not, not sexually enslaved and be able to be educated. And uh, so he came back and, and went straight to the third special forces uh, group, uh, became an interpreter there. Then went on the Afghan uh, anti-terrorism uh, task force, 
and then uh, came over uh, from there. Uh, he worked at the presidential palace with that, and then came over from there and was picked up on this JSOC uh, task force. And uh, so when he came to us, he was initially just my interpreter. And then we had a program to vet these guys and uh, and give them some special skills and training to be able to be embedded with us. And so he was, you know, polygraphed, heavily vetted, then trained, and then uh, and then he ultimately became a senior cultural advisor and an embedded team member, allowed to go out with the AFOs in a singleton capacity. And so that's where he became, you know, my primary teammate. And so all eight of my deployments, when I worked, anytime I worked uh, singleton, it, it was me and Aziz, and we go out for weeks. You know, weeks at a time, uh, just the two of us and you know, cross border or end up, you know, J bad or, you know, all, all over and just building all the clandestine infrastructure that, you know, AFOs do to, to be able to, you know, do these, you know, unconventional type, uh, you know, putting, putting our salters on target. And uh, there's a lot that goes behind, you know, and I know you know, but for your listeners, there's a lot that goes behind when you look at a, you know, a tier one asset going on target to capture, kill a bad guy. Uh, they don't get in our target by accident. And there's a lot of, uh, that goes behind putting them on target. There's a lot of contingencies in place. There's a lot of local national assets that are in place. And so the AFOs go in advance and set all that up. And so Aziz and I would be in advance setting all that up for the, for the unit. And, uh, and, you know, we, and he, he was just brilliant. He was brave, probably one of the most courageous people I've ever seen. And he was always putting, like, if we were going, I had the military experience, but if we we're going around a corner or going to a house or going into you know, a cave or something like he was, he would go first because I was his responsibility. And, uh, and he was always very serious about that. And wow. he saved my life three times specifically. Uh, and, uh, and then on, uh, but I would say he saved my life every day. Like don't yeah. walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to the person. Like right. if you speak right now, like shut up, if you speak right now, we're going to die. Wow. Like he was always making sure that I was safe. And then when, whenever I, uh, was done with operation, I didn't go back to Bagram and he went home. I usually, stayed with him and his wife Hatra and I over the years. I mean, we we have a, this now that she's back there back in Texas, we have this incredible relationship. But it started way back in 2004 uh that in this uncommon relationship for American to be able to have access to Afghan wife. And and I was there when Mashud, his older son was born in Mashuda. So we developed a, a very, very special and I'd, I'd say uncommon relationship between uh US personnel and an interpreter. Yeah. Uh, what was that first time that stands out in your mind where you're like, wow, this guy just saved my life right here. It was, it was, we were, um, we were supplying these safe houses. And, uh, this is th the reason I remember specifically, cause I was like, this guy's not only, uh, looking out for me, but he's like extremely street smart and, uh, and, 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 and he has the ability to keep me safe. Cause I'm going to, I made a mistake today and I'm going to, I'm probably going to make more. And he's the one that's going to keep me alive. We were we were supply stocking these safe houses, so we'd have safe houses, and we put all local national assets in it, you know, for the guys, you know, blood, like blood for the you know, clothes, money, uh, water, food, you know, vehicles with vehicles with right 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 plates and permits and all the stuff that needs to be in as a safe house. We would also have hard rooms with with local national weapons, so AK forty sevens and extra ammo and PKMs and RPGs and grenades and all the stuff that that would be local national stuff. That, and so we would usually buy that stuff from off the street from bad guys. And, uh, so, so we were buying, I was going to buy a couple of crates of AK 47s, a PKM and some, uh, and a lot of ammunition. And the guy that previously had, had did these buys was a, was a team guy. And I won't say his name cause I don't embarrass him, but he was, he was actually kind of a knucklehead yeah. and was doing some things that created a, uh, created a scenario that these guys, that Aziz is like, Hey, I think they think this could be the same guy. And they're, and because of the way he handled that, I'm pretty sure they're going to try to roll him up 
and rob him and kill him. And, and they think that's who they thought that's who I was going to be. So yeah. that was the same guy. Cause we were doing a handoff and, uh, and, and they didn't want to let him know I was gonna be a new guy. I was gonna show up and be the new guy. Mm. And, uh, and so Aziz is like, was just, he was just really keen on the, on, and it was like, we need to, we need to plan ahead. Let's bring, I'll go with you. And we're going to, um, and we're going to uh, bring two other, two other guys. So we brought this guy, uh, Dano and bank with us. And, uh, and, and as we go into this compound, it was like, we met in this mud compound, you know, I had these Afghan just walls compound mm-hmm. we we pulled in they had like a culvert over a ditch we pulled into this compound closed the gate behind us and the guy's waiting in there and he had like an suv and me and me and dan are are, are looking at the the guns and uh and check making sure everything was there and bank and uh bank and aziz are looking over the wall uh looking at that that entryway that we came in and while we we're looking at the guns i heard aziz start screaming uh and he's screaming at someone and i heard bank screaming at someone and they're yelling at some at someone I couldn't make out what was happening. But the guy right away says, uh, says, Hey, don't hurt them. They're my friends. And I'm like, how do you know who they are? Because they're on the other side of a wall. Like, so, so he had some people there to come meet him. And so Dan grabs the guy, sticks a pistol in his ribs and, uh, holds the guy. And I go over with, uh, Aziz and bank and, uh, the guys couldn't get out of the car. There was four guys in the car. They all, they all four had AK 47s and, you know, look like typical Taliban. And, um, and uh, they couldn't get out of the car because Aziz and Bank had him pinned down. So we took the guys out of the car, uh, zip tied them, laid them in a ditch, and took their weapons and uh, moved that. It they had a little Corolla, so we moved the Corolla out of the way so we could actually get out and threw their keys in the field and, and left them there because uh, we didn't know who these guys belonged to and yeah. didn't want to create something by killing them or anything, which you know wouldn't just murder them anyway. But but uh, we we uh, and then we took the guy with us. And Aziz is like, take him with us, and we're gonna we're gonna drop him off and go tell his uncle who we were doing the deals through, who's a who's a tribal leader. And uh, so that's what we did. We drove him in the in the, the next town, dropped him off. He was the whole time he's yelling like, "Don't kill me!" And uh, Banks like panicking and he's not panicking because he's but he was like freaking. He's like, "Tell him to shut up!" And I don't know what he, I don't know what he's saying. He's so like, wild. he's asking us not to kill him. And so, uh, anyways, uh, we uh, ended up kicking the guy out of the car and going to his uncle and saying, "Hey, we were trying to do business with you." And, your nephew tried to rob us and, and, uh, and then we never seen or heard from the guy again, but oh. it, it was, it was that incident that I, I was like, this guy is not, he's looking out for me yeah, and he's super street smart. And, uh, you know, I could have just walked into something and, and I would have been dead today. And, and, uh, but you know, he, he was thinking ahead and, and, yeah. and uh, so yeah, that, that to me was like, man, he's, 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 he's the guy and everybody's okay. worked with him. Same thing. Wow. What was that? What was the second time? Was it the, that same deployment or a different, different deployment? You know, the, the, the second, the second time was, uh, uh, I, I want to mention, you know, probably not directly saving me, but, um, he, I want to mention this cause he just got an award from Congress, uh, recognized by Congress, uh, based off eyewitness statements. There was a uh, four, four, uh, four team guys, um, who were doing this incredible, I mean, these guys are super solid. So saying we, saying that Z's rescued them, is not a, a hit on them. These guys were like super solid, uh, but they were, they were, uh, they were uh, two two snipers and two and two other team guys that were with them, and they were in this. Uh, I don't want to say the platform they were on, but they were in this platform. Got stuck in this village, and the village was like heavily like occupied Taliban village. So four guys stuck there. Wow. A traditional QRF would have lit off like a major like fight that U.S. personnel would have died. The whole operation would have been compromised, and so they're asking us if there was a you know a clandestine extraction method that we could we could pull off, and and we were like we didn't have some of our assets in place 
and it would have been very difficult. As he's like, just I mean, he's an interpreter, right? He's an interpreter, but then you got these guys that have all this experience. As he steps up and is like, here's what we're gonna do, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna get this vehicle, and this was specific. So we'll say we're gonna get this particular vehicle, and we're gonna drive all night, and we're gonna drive there, and we're gonna go get these guys. And he's like, he's like, these are my brothers. I'm like, you don't even know them. He's like, they're my brothers. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and, uh, and, and so, I mean, for an Afghan, like to put them, their life at risk to go get four team guys that I never met before. And like, it was, it was a crazy deal and driving to that village. And we drove all night and we got in that village and, and, uh, and you know, it was because of him, we got those guys out and all four, we got all four of the team guys out, all their equipment. And, uh, with some, we had some critical equipment with them. We were able to extract the equipment. And, uh, and, you know, and, and no one got hurt and it was no, and, and the operation wasn't compromised because of him. Wow. And just like, he's just, he was just Johnny on a spot all the time and, uh, was a hundred percent in and, uh, you know, proved his loyalty to America. But, yeah. you know, I don't think it was about America so much as it was about freedom, like the cause of freedom. And I was telling someone today, like this guy, like I, I really, he really opened my eyes because this guy got understood freedom and democracy and was willing to die for it. And he never even seen it before. Wow. You know, and uh, I think that's something every American can learn from. Like, you know, oh, yeah. he, he knew, like, I don't want my daughters to grow up like this. I don't want my my country to be this way. Uh, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. And we have the opportunity right now to fight for it. And he was wow. willing to do it. And it was, it was, it, 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 it always inspired me. It was always, yeah. me and the guys would always be talking about it. Man, Aziz is like, he's he's American. He never been to America. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's that appreciation, you know, and, and that investment, you know, it's, uh, it's when you invest in something, then you have, you have ownership rather than just taking. I think there's so many, too many people today that just are just taking the, the beneficiaries of the sacrifices of previous generations, and they don't appreciate what was sacrificed for those freedoms, uh, right. which causes them to act a certain way, have certain behaviors uh, that show that they are not thankful, grateful, appreciative of those options and opportunities and freedoms that for which so many sacrifice. But then you have someone here, you have Aziz, who uh, maybe aspiring to, to someday experience that freedom firsthand, yeah. fighting for it on his home turf uh, with you, side by side with Americans. What was, what was, the, what was the third one that stood out to you? Uh, the, third, the third one was, um, you know, when we were... Uh, when, I'm, I'm so late. Okay. Yeah. But third one, I was, uh, across border and, uh, and I'll just say cross border, um, uh, in a neighboring country. And, uh, and I, because of our comp operation got compromised, um, by the, when the guys were, when those guys were rolled up and killed, those 12 guys rolled up and 10 of them were Afghans and killed. Uh, we had a compromise because one of the guys that was vetted polygraph trained, trained by OGA, uh, turned Taliban and turned, turned us over. And, uh, not only that, he uh, he had orchestrated a V bid to be drove drove into our home, uh, my, my home where I lived. Luckily, none of our team members were there. One of our guards were there. We're pretty sure he was killed. We don't know for sure, but pretty sure still to this day he was killed. Uh, but a V bid was driven our home. They went after us specifically, and I ended up being rolled up by a by a foreign intelligence agency uh, for for a day. And uh, and um, you know he orchestrated an effort to uh, make sure that I was safe and be able to get out of the area that I was in. And, uh, and he put his life at risk to be able to do that. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, you know, him and his family was at risk cause, cause he was part of the compromise. And, uh, but he, he still felt that overwhelming responsibility to protect me. Uh, wow. Jeez. 
What's, uh, how, what were you guys doing that you weren't there? Was there something that happened that, uh, like you should have been in that house and you happened to not be there that day or was it? I was, I was, I was the, the house was in Kabul and, uh, and I was across border and, uh, and the other guys were, uh, the other guys were, I don't know where at, but they were somewhere else in Afghanistan. And so when they caught the guy, by the way, the, the command actually caught the guy, uh, like everybody, everything shut down and everybody went after him. And, uh, and so we got him and, uh, when they got him, he had, he had tablets with like, he had been having for months, like where, where each person slept, where our safes were, wow. our, our routes and times, even though we were deviating routes and times, he had routes and times. Uh, so he had a, a full like journal on all of us. And, uh, and so when they, when they caught him, he had all that on him. And wow. he, so he, so this guy, his name's Bashir. He, uh, and I have a picture of that little rat bastard right over there, but he, he, uh, he gets called by the command, gets put in Bagram jail. Then he goes out oh, and, uh, I that's think not a good place to be. Or... I've been in there yeah. <laughs> on the right side, on the right side of the bars, <laughs> the right side of the bars. Yeah, it's not a good yeah, spot. So, so he, he's in jail and then he gets released to Saudi Arabia. And, uh, I think in, I think in 2011, and then he gets freed and comes back to Afghanistan and joins the Taliban. Uh, and so, we, you know, our, our government released him, uh, under, under the Obama administration, uh, during his big release. So he gets released and, uh, and he goes back. And so he works his way up to be uh, a leader in the Taliban. And now at the time of the evacuation, uh, not the evacuation, the withdrawal, he gets, he gets sent over to Kabul and he starts hunting down people from our operation. And so I learned about this in April. And this is like, uh, what really sparked my interest in the evacuation because Aziz calls me and says, Hey, Bashir's looking for me. He killed, uh, he, he ends up, he ends up catching and killing, uh, one of the guys that worked with us and, and cut his head off in front of his son. And so Aziz is like, I, I need to start moving. So it's starting like, I think around June, Aziz started moving houses, uh, regularly being on, on the run. And, uh, and I started, we had put, had Aziz's SIV in process for six years, which is only supposed to be a nine month process. And talking about a guy that did 15 years, special operations, vetted, polygraphed, worked, at the premier like special operations command, like this guy for six years, his, his visa didn't go through. Uh, and so, uh, and so I'm like calling everybody. I know people in Congress and Senate, like, Hey, this is my friend. This is what he did. I, I'm, I'm like violating things that I probably shouldn't be saying like in letters, like, because I'm like, I don't care if I get in trouble because you guys need to do the right thing and get him out. And nothing was happening. Uh, they were not going to get him out. And so, uh, as we got closer to it, I'm watching, you know, President Biden make the announcements on the withdrawal and starts giving specific dates. You know, me and every other veteran knew that was going to be catastrophic. And for me personally, I'm like, I, I, I'm going to have to do something for my friend. I'm going to have to go get my friend. Yeah. And that's what made we made a decision. To, you know, I started calling people. We had several different types of operations. Started going to the AFO background. I called uh, the Daily Wire, which is uh, Tucker Carlson's show, and as a as a reporter there their name. Uh, Richard McGinnis, who was undercover with Antifa and uh, and and uh, during uh, during all the all the riots and stuff like that, wow. and uh, does a lot of the undercover stuff with uh, they, a lot of the stuff you've seen on Tucker Carlson. The footage was was yeah. from him, from Richard McGinnis. He was he was actually there when that during the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. Yeah. He put pressure on that guy's head when so wow. he was testified during it during that case. And so he's like he's he's like pretty you know down to get down to do crazy stuff uh yeah. reporter and I've, I've known him because i did a lot of interviews with him i said hey we're gonna go into afghanistan and i'm gonna get take you in and get the footage of uh the withdrawal i'll be your like consultant and then we're gonna get aziz as local consultant 
and we'll do, we'll, we'll like really get you a good story. All I need you to do is when we leave, we need to go back, take us, Jesus family back to Dubai to interview them there. And so that was the plan and things just, and, and actually the daily caller had approved to do that, that operation. Uh, they were, they were totally in, they knew what we were doing. We weren't hiding anything from them. And then, uh, and, and, uh, but things just sped up too quickly and we couldn't pull it off in time. And so we just said, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to go get him. And so I started calling guys from the special operations community, uh, a few team guys, uh, some SF guys, some guys from the OG, uh, CIA's paramilitary unit ground branch that, that I knew really well, who were, who had the experience to do these kind of operations. So I had some really, uh, good network of veterans that, uh, better people from the veteran community had the experience and willingness to go help. Uh, one of them, Tim Kennedy, um, a lot of people kind of gave us a hard time because Tim Kennedy was involved. What people don't know about Tim is that he was ASO level three scout sniper, uh, well, sniper in, in army. Like he's, he has tons of combat experience and, and I've known him for like 14 years. And, and, and I also needed someone with a platform that could help. That's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. so these are, you know, these are considerations. So we, we put together uh, and, and Tim's heart was just like, he was offered money for other people. And, and for me, it was like, there's no money. Like this is just us just going to help. And we, we and uh, so he volunteered to do it. So we, we put this team together and as we're putting it together, uh, one of the team members pointed out something pretty important. Um, hey, there's these 30, it's great that we could go get a disease, his wife and six kids, but there's these 3,500 orphans. What about them? And I kind of think it kind of made us push just to pause for a second and say, look around in the room, like the, the guys that we had, like tremendous amount of experience, a lot of willingness to, uh, you know, everybody was hundred percent on board. Let's get as many Americans, interpreters, their families, uh, women, children, Christians that be persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. And so uh, I think that was like a, a another burden that got put in our hearts, to, each each of our hearts to do that. I think everybody in the group was people of faith and really felt God burdened our hearts. In fact, we called it Task Force 6-8 from Isaiah 6-8. You know, uh, yeah, who, who, us, who will go for us? Here am I, send me. me. And wow. so that's that's where we called it Task Force 6-8 out of that. Wow. And that was the initial Save Our Allies effort that we launched out of both Mighty Oaks Foundation and Sarah Verardo's Independence Fund. And, uh, and so as we started, uh, made the decision to, to help more people, what I really, and it's one of the things that I think most, most important things in the book for me, uh, is that, uh, that I just witnessed like what I believe is a miracle. Cause in a three day period, like the most incredible thing happened, a series of events happened that if one of them would have not worked, the whole thing would have, would have failed. Uh, the first was that. Uh, Sarah Ordo was able to call the Joint Chiefs uh, and get permission for our NGO to go onto the uh, HKI airport to do civilian evacuations, which you know from being in the middle, that's impossible. Uh -huh. To some, say, yeah, we're gonna let some DODs go let civilians come on the airport and do evacuations. We asked, and they said yes. And uh, and not only that, they said they would manifest, uh, uh, vet our manifest, and give us approval for our manifest, which is a big deal because I think a lot of people were concerned, me included, that we'd bring the wrong type of people out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Which I don't have the I don't have the ability to bring people to America because I'm not the State Department. I can bring people to a third party country, yeah. and the State Department could do their role. Right. So that was the yeah. that was the first thing which I think if that would have not happened, it would have been very difficult. Yeah. The second was like now you got these people that don't have visas. Where do you bring them to? Like you can't just bring people without visas to another country. That's human trafficking. So we we had some two connections in our group with the royal family in UAE, and uh, and, and Joe Roberts and one of the other guys I can't say his name, but. They both called the called and we set up a conference call. And after an hour long conference call, the UAE royal family said, "We'll roll out the red carpet for you, and we're going to give you humanitarian center, doctors, like whatever you need. You bring them here. We're going to take care of them." And then they said, "By the way, we're also going to give you a C seventeen plane 
if you fill that one up, we're going to give you another one. Wow. And, uh, and, and so we had, now we had, we had access to the airport. We had a place to bring people to, and we had the means to do it. Uh, we knew we need more planes. And, uh, and, and the next day, Glenn Beck called, if you know, Glenn Beck, the radio ho show host, most powerful thing he has is a microphone. And so many people want to do something. And he did himself. He got him behind that microphone and he, he asked for help and his audience, the blaze audience and his foundation met Mercury one just responded incredibly. And in a few days he raised three, $21 million wow. overall. I think he raised 46 million, but he called me at the $21 million mark and said, I got all this money. I thought I raised a few thousand. I'm like, what do I do with it? <laughs> and I said, I need you to, I need you to pay for planes. And uh, so all these people came together and this amazing thing was orchestrated in a period of three days that, that to me is like a divine miracle. And, uh, you know, uh, I, we get a lot of credit for what we've done, but to be honest with you, like we had, we had a lot of gray hair in our teams. <laughs> we, we were all, you know, hadn't done it in a long time. And so we were not the A team to do it, but, uh, but, you know, I believe God orchestrated the perfect group of people who had the willingness to go. And, and uh, we went to Abu Dhabi, set up operations, Sarah Barardo set up a team in Washington, DC to take mm -hmm. applications. We had so many people requesting help and we were orchestrating uh building target packages to rescue people. We had a ground team that went outside the wire uh, from the HKI airport to get people. And it was very coordinated effort to do something like that. And uh, in, in that non-permissive environment of the Taliban, especially because the, the white house gave the NEO operation, the non-combatant evacuation operation, from the DOD to the state department, which restricted the DOD to one location and oh, wow. the Taliban took that outer perimeter. So now you had to, we had to deal with that. And the people come trying to come in had to deal with that. So, uh, so it was very, it was a very complex uh, environment, but uh, over, and we, we didn't know how much, how much time we had. We just knew we had to work fast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I mean, no one stopped to sleep. If you stop for five minutes, you're like, someone's going to die because I'm stopping for five minutes to sleep. Sea mm -hmm. uh, spray. One of our, one of our teammates, uh, goes by sea spray. He, he lost 37 pounds in 10 days moving people. I mean, wow. he just didn't stop. And, uh, and so it was just, it was incredible to be amongst these guys and watching the work they did. Uh, Tim Kennedy, sea spray, Sean G was our ground team out of the HKI airport going outside the, the wire and getting people. Uh, we had a, we had a air force JSOC unit that actually was able to grab Aziz the first day and we coordinated it and get him in. So we got Aziz's family and, and through a 10 day period, we had no idea how many people we got out, but when that Abigate blew up and 13 of our service members died, the military had to weld the gate shut and, uh, and begin their evacuation of the airport. And we had tallied up and we had got 12,000 people out of that point. And, uh, and we, we had no idea like, uh, and then we, we decided at that point as the military is leaving, we're like, they're leaving, but we, we don't have to leave. And, uh, right. and this, this could get, you know, it gets like really political and, but, the White House was saying it was 100 Americans still there, and it's not a political debate. To me, like being on the ground, and there was thousands of Americans still there, mm. uh, well over 1,000 Americans still there. And so, and, and the truth is, it doesn't matter if there was 100 or 1,000, or right? Yeah. You, you don't leave an American behind. Uh, and uh, even Joe Birdall, like idiot trader, like we lost people trying to go get him. Like you know, the mentality is you scorched earth around that person to go get an American. That's a promise that we should have to the American people. And, uh, and, and I just I just couldn't just pack up and go home and say it's over and uh, no one else on our team wanted to. And so we stayed and, uh, and I can tell you, like I say, we, and, and we, uh, to save our allies effort, me personally have gotten a lot of credit for this, but the truth is there were so many amazing people, mainly Americans and nonprofits that chose to stay in the task force Oregon and, and Mercury one and all these, uh, I could go down a list of uh, task force pineapple and you know, so, so many amazing people 
that continued to work. And over a period of about two more months, collectively, we got about another 5,000 people out. So, uh, and, and, and uh, another, so 17,000 people total. And when that was over, uh, we, the aircraft was over, we made this decision that we had to find another way to still help because people were still trying to get across borders. In Uzbekistan, we had looked at this one operation in Uzbekistan, but what had happened was all the Afghan people that were trying to survive moved to this place called the Panjshir Valley. And uh, Ahmad Massoud's son is now the resistance leader. And you know, anybody knows the history of Afghanistan and, and the 9-11, you know about the Northern Alliance leader, Ahmad Massoud. His son now is the leader of resistance. And all these people are trying to resist the Taliban and they're the Panjshir Valley. And many of the civilians, they're trying to push them out across the border into Tajikistan. The problem was geographically, and anybody's familiar with that area, you got 25,000 foot mountain peaks, uh, and it would take a week to get through there. And then you maybe get a family through there, and now you have a thousand foot cliff or the Panjshir River, which is the border, which is ice melt water, like below freezing, but just slushy moving through the in many parts are like category five rapids. And then on top of all that geographical, uh, difficulties. You have the Taliban checkpoints everywhere on that border and to that border. And then the Chinese military is securing that border. The Russian military is there and the Tajikistan border guards there. So the, there's no way really to cross without intel from the other side. And that's, you know, as a force recon Marine, you know, and, you know, COR and S teams, you go out and do route recons and, for, and fording reps for crossing rivers and building routes. And uh, that's kind of my, my background. And so I said, uh, let's put a small two man team together and, and go into Tajikistan and build some routes out for these people. And that's one one thing we could still do. And so we made a decision to do that. And, and uh, there was a Marine named Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, who had just got off active duty, was in the reserves. He had J he was at JSOC uh, previously. Uh, so he had a lot of experience. Scout sniper, several-time Force Recon Team Leader of the Year. So just a solid dude. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he was the guy that we said be a great partner for me to go do this. But the problem was he was still in the reserves, and I knew his CO, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Waller, and I just asked, "Hey, sir, do you, can we get uh, Dennis Price, Staff Sergeant Price, to come on this uh, humanitarian operation with me in Tajikistan?" He's like, "We well, put it in writing," and so we did, and the Marine Corps approved it. And he wow, came and uh, which is you know I don't think they meant to, yeah. <laughs> or, or knew, knew exactly what he was going to do, but they approved it, and he flies into Tajikistan with me, and twelve hours through those mountains, and we spent ten days on that border doing ninety miles of border reconnaissance, and. And uh, every night, you know, we build a, find a route, plot a route, identify, you know, where Chinese, Russians, and Taliban were, and we we swim across in Afghanistan and and and, uh, and river, and we did the both sides, did the fording rep, and, and provided all that information back to our, our government intelligence, our government intelligence agencies, Jeez. to because uh, our government intelligence agencies did want that information uh, because we had good people in those in, in those organizations uh, that didn't agree with what was happening. Uh, we we provided it to other NGOs that were doing evacuations and to the to the people on the ground, so the commandos there could safely get them out with with instructions of where to cross, how to cross, and all the information that you would put in a you know a Ford Ford rep or or a route rep. And we provided a tremendous amount of information. I mean, it was it was crazy in the border, like like literally like Taliban was was every, everywhere, and, and the Chinese military was it was. It was a uh, it was it was a pretty crazy uh, operation. I write a lot about in the book. Uh, and uh, at the time, it seemed like it made sense looking back to it now. <laughs> but uh, and that, yeah. that water was was ice cold. And uh, but uh, you Man. know, but at the time, you know, going into that, I it just felt like we had to do it. Like my wife, we we're going to the airport. My wife's like, "Okay, I got H. Kaya. You got disease, but why are you going to do this?" Like she's thinking, she's like, "Do you have something to prove?" Like right. you know, and, and I'm like, 
what if what i mean i think everybody should ask this like you know what if what if it was and that's what i told my wife what if it was my daughter like what if it was like our daughter that would be sexually enslaved the rest of her life or our sons that be pushed pushed into madrasas to become taliban you know terrorists the rest of their life like what if it was us wouldn't we wouldn't we be praying that someone somewhere in the world would come and help and uh and i just felt like god had burned my heart to do it he the, these doors these impossible doors were open i mean to go do something like that to get into Tajikistan during a war on the border i mean we had to we had to get g-bow permits to get on the border all these impossible things kept happening i'm like god's opening these doors uh to go um we have to and uh and, and I'm, I'm glad we did because we got we were able to to help a lot of people and and uh you know it's pr- pretty a pretty incredible thing wow. to be part of and yeah. and some amazing people uh stepped up to make it happen and one of the things you said earlier, it was really encouraging to hear you say that, that you read the book and it's a book of hope. Mm-hmm. It really is because uh, at times, whether regardless of what political side you sit on and what news station you watch, it, it can feel pretty hopeless in, in our country right now. Yeah. But the truth is, you know, when the governments of the world in 2021 did not do the right thing, including our own, uh, uh, it was good people stood up and did the right thing. And, and, and mainly, mainly Americans, uh, mainly from America that stood up and said, this is not okay. This is not right. Uh, I'm going to, you know, put my money, put my safety, put my resources, put my influence on the line to do the right thing, uh, for their fellow human. Yeah. And people came from all over. Like there's a lot of people that follow me on social media that doesn't like some of my conservative opinions. And they follow me just to, they don't like me. And they were like, Hey, I don't like you. They write me like, Hey, I don't like you. And I, and I always I follow you because because uh, I don't like you, but what you're doing is awesome. Where can we donate? Oh wow! And I was like, that's the coolest thing. And we had this cool. Jewish organization that was like, hey, we want to we want to pay for two planes. And one was eight hundred thousand, and one was seven hundred thousand. Wow. So it was like a one point five million dollar donation. And they, and they and they're out of Israel, and they and they go to make this donation, and they come back, and they and they say, hey, we can't make the donation because Mighty Oaks Foundation, which is where the money was going to, is a Christian organization, and we're Jewish, so we can't make the donation. And I'm like, okay, but. You do realize we're rescuing Muslims, right? <laughs> we kind of laughed and and paused for a second. And they made the donation, and so oh, wow. people people came together wow. from different backgrounds and beliefs and and political values, and mm. they did the right thing. And and there's hope in that. And yeah. and uh, and it was really encouraging. It was encouraging to me. Oh, uh, this is an American. Yeah, no, it's an incredible story. And uh, when when you when you're in Kabul at the airport, did you have to deal with uh, with the Taliban and that outer ring of security? Did you have to have uh, like face to face interactions through an interpreter? Was the military handling that, or what was your what was your interaction with the Taliban during that uh, evacuation? So at, at that part at the at the Dejkaya, yeah. I I did personally. It would have been a uh, uh, Sean G, C Spray, Tim Kennedy. But your Tim group Kennedy, did. Your group had that to. Group did. Yeah, they had a Tim had a face off. Uh, had a face off with some Taliban guys. Yeah. And it was like, you know, who wants them today? And, uh, you know, he was armed at, at that time. And, 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 uh, I think for the most part, the Taliban, when they seen who you were, like, and they picked up like, okay, these guys are somebody, uh, they backed down because they wanted us to leave. And they knew yeah. we had a date, right. They know like the white house gave them a date, like August 31st, we're leaving. Yeah. Hey, can we get to September? Nope. August 31st, we're leaving. So they knew that we were leaving. So they didn't push it with any of us. And I, I don't know of any scenario of, of soft guys leaving the wire or uh our three guys because i think at the airport it was only our three guys that left the wire uh i think outside of the airport i mean i could be wrong and, and people will get all upset if i'm wrong but i think the only people that actually went outside the wire uh, uh and went into afghanistan to do evacuations would have been uh sean g c spray tim kennedy myself and dennis uh besides that everybody worked from inside the the airport 
or, or from back in the States and did amazing efforts. But so I think the only people that would have got into that would have been, you know, Tim's Sean or, or C spray. And, uh, and, the, and I mean, one time Sean G was said right, right in front of him, uh, two people were shot right in the head and the Taliban just looked right at him and, and let him walk by. And, uh, they, they kill, and they were killing people right in, um, right in front of our U S military all the time. The, the way that operation really set up it, it I think it's important for people to understand. Uh, I break this a lot, down a lot in the book. Is when you have uh, civilians in a hostile area or combat environment, uh, there's that's what's called a neo operation, a non-combatant evacuation operation. And that's a DOD function. And there's a reason that our State Department has, does dip- diplomacy, and our state dip- and our military uses strength because it's two separate in- separate efforts. Mm-hmm. It's very important that those efforts be separated. In this situation, the White House took the DOD's. Uh, neo operation away from them and gave it to the state department and uh it's like you know it's like if we both worked on an airplane and the baggage handler stuff jumps in the pilot seat right we both work at the airline but one person is going to crash the plane and uh that's what happened with <laughs> what it. was the rationale did anyone ever tell you or, or speculate about the rationale behind doing that i was told and uh that that the white house believed that the military had too much of a personal attachment to the relationship with the afghan national army and afghan national police and their allies there that's what i was told uh oh. I, I mean I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but that, that that's why. And uh, and the State Department was, you know, the ones negotiating with the Taliban, not the Afghan government, by the way, but the actual Taliban, which has been, you know, one of the most perplexing questions to me that's never been answered, is uh, we have we have been there twenty years. We stood up a government, the Afghan government. We had this international effort with every you know NATO country in the world participating in uh, keeping the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. Uh, capable in a support and advisory capacity since 2018 to push the Taliban into those mountains and keep the world a safer place. But the White House didn't 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 talk to the NATO. They didn't talk to Britain and Germany and everybody else that was participating. They didn't talk to the Afghan uh, Afghan government that we put in place. The only people the White House negotiated with was the Taliban through the State Department. And so, uh, you know, and I don't know why that, that would have took place that way. No one could explain it. No one even, no one would even ask the question no. or bring accountability to that question. But it's a very important question. Like, why did we negotiate with the enemy of 20 years and not with that government that we spent 20 years putting in place or our international ally partners from around the world? Yeah, it shouldn't be lost on anyone that we spent 20 years giving the Taliban, you know, back to the Taliban, essentially, giving that country of Afghanistan back to the Taliban. It's a insane scenario and, and then so this new operation was given to the state department and they treated the airport like an embassy and so if you can imagine embassy right the military is at an embassy and they're led by the state department and same same what's happened in this airport and they were they were to control the outer the perimeter of the airport but they could not go outside to get americans they could not go outside to get allies if they saw someone being harmed or in harm's way or being killed in front of them they could not leave that airport they were treated just like embassy guards uh, now, meanwhile, the Brits and other people are flying in helicopters, going out getting people. Our troops had to watch our, our American uh, civilians try to get in the airport and had no control over it. Now, when that happened, the State Department allowed the, the Taliban to make the outer perimeter. And anybody that knows anything about military strategy, whoever controls the outer perimeter of a, a ground space controls uh, controls that ground space because they control who gets in and who gets out. And so the Taliban had full control of who got in, who got out of the airport. And so that's why we know of Americans with blue passports getting their passports taken from them, getting beaten, getting turned around, and that's why Americans were stopped had stopped going to the to the airport. And then you had the White House reporting saying, "Hey, well, if they want to evacuate, they just need to go to the airport." Uh, if you know we have we have Americans yeah. there, but they don't. They're choosing not to come. No, they're choosing not to go through a Taliban checkpoint because they just saw someone get 
murdered uh, in front of them. They just saw, you know, and this is a, this is a true, not example, uh, not a crazy example, but a real example. They just saw someone get their arms cut off and get their ID card melted to their chest, tied to the back of a car and drug through the street while they carried the guy's son away. Like, if I got a blue passport, I'm probably not going to that checkpoint and showing my blue passport and saying, hey, American, let me through. Uh, and so this is the scenario, the environment on the ground. And it was, a, I mean, and then, and then on top of that, it was just sheer chaos to get to that airport gate, tens of thousands of people trying to flood that gate, people getting trampled and, and dying of the elements of heat exhaustion, people so desperate that they were taking their babies, kissing their babies goodbye, putting them on the top to be crowd surfed. And then they get to the wall and they're throwing them as hard and high as they can to get over that wall and not realizing it's Constantino on the water on the other side. Joe Roberts, one of our guys on our team, counted six babies that bled out in that Constantino wire. Because uh, you know when a, some you know, Constantino wires crimped together, that's it. Uh, and you know it's six feet high and twenty feet deep, and you got babies getting thrown into it. I mean, the level of desperation there—it uh, was just crazy to think of people trying to get to the airport, uh, into the airport, um, and why they wouldn't have wanted to go there. I would have, I would have, if I was there with my family. I, I, I mean, and hats off to Aziz. That's how Aziz. We got Aziz through and moved him, and I, I pushed him to move through after his eighth, it's eighth, eighth attempt. I'm like, wow. you got to go, brother. But, but uh, if it was me there, looking back now, I probably would have. Went for went for a border. Yeah. Person. Right. Oh, like Chris Ryan running to Syria in the first Gulf War, you know, SAS. Man, crazy. Uh, were you guys on the airfield when uh, Abby Gate happened? Yeah. Uh, Tim and uh, Tim had just Tim had just been at the Abby Gate and I had thought he was still there when it went off. And so we had a little bit of a little moment of radio silence and we were we were super concerned he was there. Uh, and you know, thankfully he wasn't, but he, he saw the plume and, uh, he, he had just left that gate and saw the plume and, and obviously felt and heard the concussion. Uh, what did you think about when, uh, when you found out that that's where the evacuation was going to take place from Kabul and not like holding Bagram, you know, until, until we could get everybody or as many people as we could out. What were your thoughts on, on that? Well, I mean, um, you know, the, the most strategic place on the globe, in my, in my opinion, the most strategic place on the globe today is Bakken Air Force Base. It sits strategically between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. And so the fact of you know, giving that up as a strategic location in the world is, 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 a, is the issue. And the fact that we gave it up before we had evacuated our civilians is an even bigger issue. I mean, um, you, 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 don't, you don't evacuate the military and, and our military strongholds before you evacuate civilians and, uh, and, and uh, personnel or equipment. And, uh, and that's what we did. Um, and so... Um, there was a moment, and I, and I, I don't want to say this now uh, uh, because it was redacted in my book. But there's a moment that we could have we could have retaken it, and uh, and you know for some reason the Pentagon redacted the details of that in, in my book. But uh, that we could have had a secondary uh, evacuation uh, route, and uh, and, it, and you got, then you got all of our equipment there. You know, set to be eighty billion dollars in equipment. I mean, you know, if you'd lost a pair of MBGs, what would happen yeah. to you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, with Lieutenant Colonel Paul Yingling back in, let's say, 2005-ish, uh, maybe, around that time frame, he said uh, he said a, a private that loses a rifle gets in more trouble than a general who loses a war. Yeah. That still holds true today. You know, it, it no accountability for those guys. All those equipment. You know, I think here's, a, here's an important, a very important thing that everybody needs to know. Uh, and I, I, I mean... I think every American needs to know this. We, I, I believe that we were lied to for a long time by the mainstream media and by the White House, and and uh, that we were in this twenty-year war. And, and by the way, um, 
this is both administrations. Uh, I think I think President Trump uh, should not have did this, and and, Pre and President Biden. So this isn't a, just a hit on President Biden. For we were told that this 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 we were in this twenty year war. It was endless war, and our America's sons and daughters were dying, and we had to pull out. We have to get out as fast as possible. Uh, that is uh, a complete lie to the American people, and has misled us to believe this that maybe that we should have did this withdrawal, but there was it was botched. It was a, it, it could have been done better. We should not have left, and the reason the reason why it won, one it uh, from a national security perspective and a global security perspective, it made sense to keep that strategic location at Bagram Air Force Base. In 2018, the U.S. military stopped being involved in a conventional sense, fighting the Taliban, and we moved to a support and advisory role. And in moving in that support and advisory role, at times we had only 2,500 troops there, and, and at the time we withdrew 4,000 troops there. We were participating in this international effort where all these countries are coming together, supporting and advising the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police to keep the Taliban at bay in those mountains and make the world a safer place. And uh, and historically, we have not left wars this way. Um, if you look at uh, Japan since World War II, we still have 80,000 troops there. Uh, in South Korea, right on, the, on we had that you know in the 38th parallel, we still have 35,000 troops there, and it keeps the North Koreans from coming across and 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 uh, and and uh, disrupting you know that that uh, Eurasia, I mean the, the Asian Pacific area there. And then in Germany, we still have about 40,000 troops in Germany since World War II. So these uh, historically, we have a precedence of of keeping a contingency in place for strategic positioning and ground that we kept and uh, and keeping that that uh, the eye on the world and uh, and. And man, it worked. The international community was participating. And if we have all these thousands and tens of thousands of troops in other places, then why was it so important in such a rush to move 2,500 troops out? If we didn't want to be there, why didn't we give it to the international community? Why would we give that base to the Taliban? You know, a lot of lot of motives in my mind uh, of why. I mean, now, but I could say, you know, my motives are just opinions. Uh, but I, I would say that now that strategic location is owned by the enemies of the United States and enemies of the world. And, uh, and, you know, uh, China has a presence there. Uh, Iran has, Iran has influence there. Now Pakistan ISI has our equipment and has a presence there. Uh, the Taliban does not run Afghanistan. Uh, all these major, uh, world players that I just mentioned, uh, control Afghanistan and Taliban is allowed to be there by them. Man. Do you think lithium is a big, uh, part of, part of that? Yeah. You know, it's funny as uh, not, not, not even funny at all, but I was, I think I was, I forget what show I was on. And I was saying that uh, China wants the United States military out of Afghanistan because of the lithium mineral rights in the Hindu Kush mountains. And, and you know, everybody was like, that's conspiracy theory. What I mean, August 31st, we left. Uh, two days later in, in, in September, uh, the China, the Taliban announces they can give the mineral rights for the Hindu Kush mountains for all the lithium there to, to China. I mean, uh, and so, I mean, now these global resources uh, that could have been that could have been ours belongs to China, uh, and you know economically and on a global stage it weakens America. Uh, and and uh, in addition, you have oil, right? Iran has sanctioned oil that they can't sell anywhere in the world, and China wants that oil. The only thing that kept Iran from giving that oil to China was the United States military in Afghanistan. And now there's a boy there, and we know that that oil is being moved over to China. That sanctioned oil. So so many things, uh, you know, and and. You know, strategically, you know, Pakistan ISI, they they want it, they want it Bagram Air Force Base, you know, since day one. That's their involvement in Afghanistan. And and they, you know, they built up the Taliban army. I mean, I mean, you 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 know, you've been in these rooms before where there's the flat screens, TVs all over, and they, you know, got the predators and you know, watching from the sky what's happening. 
I mean, I can only imagine as this as this with, withdrawals happen, watching the Taliban come over in a, in a force of 75,000 from the mountains of Pakistan in Afghanistan, knowing what was going to happen and, and our military not being able to act and, and stop them. Wow. And, uh, you know, one of the most grotesque things I think I ever heard said in a, is, uh, is the accusation, and it came from the president, unfortunately, uh, the accusation that we can't help, we can't keep helping people that won't fight for themselves and, and, and pointing to the Afghan people. 60,000 Afghans, like Aziz, died fighting for that country to have a free Afghanistan. The ratio of that, you know, by by population, you know, it's probably like our civil war, right? 60,000 Afghans, including hundreds of thousands of civilians, died fighting for their country to to have a free Afghanistan and just and to fight terrorism. And it, and it did so because we asked them to, and uh, and we and we we didn't we didn't watch what we watched when they when they handed over rifles. We're not them quitting. It was us quitting on them because. You have to put yourself in their shoes. They had air superiority by us. They had all the support by us, by the entire international community, community, by the entire world. And we took it away from them overnight. And they went in the way as a soldier on deployment somewhere like we get to be uh, and, and go back home. That's where they live. Like if they stay and fight willing to, and, and fight to the death, which most of them will be willing to do, their wives and kids are down the street. Yeah. And they're not just going to be killed. They're going to have to watch their their wives and, and daughters be raped in front of them and their, and their sons be drug off uh, before they're killed. Uh, so I don't believe these guys gave up and didn't want to fight anymore. I believe we gave up on them yeah. and, and they, you know, they, they were, they were stuck with what they were, what they were stuck with. And, uh, and many of them are still there. And, and it's a, and, and it's, you know, it is, it is a complete tragedy. And um, you know, one of my motivations behind this book is not to take political shots at the, at the white house, but to just tell the truth. Uh, and I tried to really put it that way. Like this, the truth needs to be told so that we don't do it again. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's a national security issue. I mean, how will any country ever, I mean, wars are won, won by our relationship with local nationals. How would anybody ever trust us again, knowing this is how we treat our allies? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a national security issue, in my opinion, and, and the world yeah. needs to know about it. Yeah. And when you were talking to, uh, we were talking to him on, on text, uh, in April when, when the announcement yeah. came that, Hey, we're going to be out of here by what September 11th, I think was the first thing they said. Um, might be wrong about that, but anyway, we're going to be out of there over the next few months. Um, yeah. what are you talking to him on, on text? And then you just start watching province by province fall. And then I think, was it July where we had some of the units that, uh, that maybe we worked with over there, the, some of the special operations, uh, the Afghans where there was a, there's a massacre, uh, in the village where I think I forget exactly what happened. But were you tracking that as well? I think it yeah, was, in it July. was uh, and, and that was that was a really. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because that was a significant. That was a significant factor because you had twenty. Was, I think it was twenty five uh, special commandos that we trained. These are our guys, like uh, and you know the best of the best in Afghanistan, and they were mm -hmm. definitely warfighters. And and man, they they get caught by the Taliban, and the Taliban brings them out in the streets on camera and executes them on the street, like literally executes them on the street, uh, and, and uh. The fact that no one responded to that and no, and it wasn't even called out as an atrocity gave them the green light to do whatever they wanted. And it barely made a blip in the news. Like no one ever even barely even talked about it. Yeah. And it was like, man, like at that point they knew like, Hey, we have free reign. We could do, we could do what we want. I mean, if you're going to take guys that were shoulder to shoulder with us last week and we allowed them to be executed in the streets, yeah. like, and, and then, and then, the, you know, now we're saying this and the next day in the news, they're saying, this is the new Taliban. <laughs> no, this isn't the new Taliban. This is the same old, you know, uh, Desh thugs 
that, that we were exterminating the world of over the last 20 years. And now mm-hmm. we just gave them a country and we just gave them 20 million female sex, sex slaves to do what they want to with. And, uh, you know, where are the people standing up for these little girls rights? And as they're, as they're, before they even take Kabul, they're, they're going through and, and demanding a list. The mullahs are demanding a list of all women between 14 and 45 years old as, as, as war booty for wives for the Taliban to be Taliban brides. Before August 31st, they were already selling little girls, little nine-year-old girls for 500 bucks as the Taliban was coming through. Uh, I mean, this is the same Taliban. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we already seen right now that, I mean, I think just yesterday it came out that the women aren't allowed to see male doctors anymore, but women also aren't allowed to be educated. So now women don't have any healthcare anymore because yeah. so, I mean, their healthcare has been taken away. Their education has been taken away. They're already back in burqas. They're already getting, they're already getting beat again. They're already being sold off as children, as little, little girls to be sex, uh, sex slaves. I mean, this isn't this, this isn't a, the same, the different Taliban, same old Taliban. Yeah. I remember being in the back of a Hilux back in the early days in Afghanistan and, uh, being with one of our, uh, uh, our Afghan partner force guys there. And, and we're talking and I, I just remember thinking, man, like we're going to leave one day, like just thinking of history, just thinking about Vietnam, thinking about the the Kurds and, uh, then thinking, you know, eventually we're going to leave and what's going to happen to this guy and his family. And I remember thinking that, back then but um what happened to uh bashir he's still he's still running around <laughs> he's uh he's running around kabul somewhere uh, probably watching these interviews man <laughs> man uh, yeah that's so that's so did he do you think he got did he get trained up um by us like did he pick up yeah, all those yeah, he, things like how to do all this t- like through us or was there's a foreign intelligence service also hitting him up do you no, think? He, he went he went through a very uh intensive training program, you know, mm. from, from our, yeah. one of our government agencies yeah. and was, and was definitely skilled up and trained. And, and he was, I mean, honestly, like he was one of my favorite guys to work with. Gosh. He was, he was, a, he was a, he was former Northern Alliance had fought the Taliban before. Uh, and he was like, he was a pipe hitter, man. He was like, he was a violent dude. Uh, and I don't know why, uh, I can't tell you why he flipped. Maybe, you know, yeah. sometimes they get caught with the circumstances of the family or I, so I don't know why, what his motivation was. Uh, but you know, he, he had, he had, you know, 10 of our, 10 of our, 10 of his teammates, 10 of his Afghan teammates killed and, uh, and, you know, had tried to kill disease and me and my friends and, and, uh, you know, he's, and, uh, you know, right now, I mean, to best of my knowledge, you know, when Aziz left, he was running around Kabul. Shaq, man, crazy. And, uh, Aziz, I saw you guys on your Instagram doing on a little hunt earlier, uh, earlier yeah. this last, last year, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, how, so how's that? How's he adapting and how's everything going? Well, man, uh, you know, it was the coolest thing, him coming to Texas, you know, him, you know, he's a Texan now he's got the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat and, and he's really embracing it. And, and he works, he works for our foundation at Mighty Oaks. Um, and, and just does a major job. You know, one of the things he's going to do is, is he's, going to build the SIB program for us at Mighty Oaks because when these, all these interpreters that are here that didn't make it here, that served with us for 20 years, they don't have a VA they could go to to get the help they're going to need. Not everything's slowed down for them. And so at Mighty Oaks Foundation, one of the things we want to do is provide some kind of uh, mental and spiritual health transition program to help them transition as, and, uh, you know, be, be, being Americans and, and being, being able to do it healthy. So he's going to be leading that program up for us. And so he's, he's working on that, but he had so many firsts, like, you know, being coming to America is like you know, his wife and his kids. They like first time eating a ham, like a real hamburger, and going awesome. to going to get pizza and going fishing. And and uh, I took him skydiving. And we like 
I, I had to do tandem and I was videoing his tandem jumping. And he's like, he's like, man, he's like, he took me out of Afghanistan to get me killed in Texas. And Seriously. So took him jumping. And, and yeah, so we went hunting and we we're laying in that blind that, that in a deer blind and we we're talking and it just kind of felt like old times. And he's like, yeah. he's like, we're back, we're back hunting again, but no one's shooting back at us. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and uh, it was, it was a cool, real cool moment. And uh, it was uh, that day that cold snap came through. So it was pretty cold. Yeah, so uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was super, super cool. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I, I want to share that I thought was so cool is when I met Hatra, uh, his wife, this was like 2004. He sees my wife on, uh, on, on, we didn't have Instagram or FaceTime back in. We had like the Yahoo messenger. He's seen a video of it. So he was so moved that I let him see my wife, right? He saw my wife and my wife's like, Hey, don't let my, don't let my husband get killed. And he thought it was so cool that he thought he needed to return the, the, the favor and let me meet his wife, which is, as you know, like a, a big deal for an Afghan wife to be seen by another man, much less an American. Yeah. And so 2004, he does this very awkward introduction where he's like nervous, like sweating because he could be in trouble for it. And, and his wife's like going to come out of this room and that's how it's going to happen. I'm going to see her. He's standing in between us and we're going to get a peek of her and she's going to go back. So she comes out and like the only thing's covered, like a little bit of her eyes and she like kind of pokes out and it goes back away. And uh, that was like such, such, such an awkward, it made me uncomfortable, such an yeah. awkward thing. But over the years, like she passed by and I'd get a glimpse of her and then she'd make a meal for us in another room, but I'd be able to see her in another room. So over the year, and then when I remember when, when Mashu was born, I got to actually see her a little bit more over the years, we had this relationship. And then when Aziz was actually, uh, we, we were able to get him out of Afghanistan and Abu Dhabi. I went to the humanitarian center. It was the first time I saw him and we wrap our arms around each other and I start crying right away. And he did too. And mm. then his sons uh, came up and Mash, Mashu, uh, Mashkor is youngest wraps his arms around me and he's like uncle chad and i start crying again and and across the room is 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 hatra and she's standing all the kids came up and gave me a hug but she's standing in the back but her face is fully uncovered and she puts her hand over her heart she says you know, she says tasha Kerr, which you know thank you and uh and then uh just real traditional afghan but then nine months later i come back i'm coming back from ukraine and i rush back from ukraine to come because they're they're in my driveway and uh, my, I see my dog running through the yard with uh, Mosh Kaur and, and Aziz is waiting. And I, I jump out the car and I give Aziz a big hug. And right behind him is, is Hatra. And she wraps her arms around me in this giant hug. And she's like, thank you, brother. Wow. And uh, and this transition. So it's like, for me, it's like probably one of the most beautiful things, this transition of where we met, you know, just in the glimpse of her in her in her house in Kabul, yeah. 2004, to all the way till now. She's And now we're just like, man, she's so funny. We have a blast. She's learning English. And uh, and I took her, they never been to a movie before. And she's like, Kabul didn't have any trees. And so she thinks she calls the woods here in Texas, the jungle. And she thinks something's going to come out and eat her. So I took her, Aziz was out of town and I took her and the kids to see Jurassic Park at the theater. <laughs> didn't realize how real that would seem to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's like, what are you doing to me? That's so wild. It's been, it's just been a really cool experience, man. It's uh, I, I just feel so blessed and it's like super, super surreal that when sometimes we're doing stuff together, I'm like, you're here. Like, it's so yeah. crazy that you're actually, you're actually here and you're safe. And, and not only that, like he's getting, he got that congressional. And I don't know that any Afghans got a congressional. I don't think, I think it's the first time in history that any Afghans got a congressional level recognition wow. for the, the operation with those four team guys. And uh, for him to get that recognition is like, man, I couldn't be happier. Cause he does, wow. he deserves it. He deserves it. And, 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 and it represents every Afghan that, that was that hadn't been recognized or that yeah. were told they wouldn't fight for their country or that are still stuck there as he gets to represent yeah. uh, them being acknowledged for what they did Man. for us. And it makes me, it makes sure it makes me happy. That's amazing. And then 
And there's still some people over there. Are you still working to get get people out of Afghanistan? There's somebody you mentioned not too long ago, uh, Lieutenant Abdul Shari. Um, yeah, Abdul Sha- uh, um, Safi. Safi. He's a uh, so so in Afghanistan. By the way, there's still seventy five thousand uh, Allied interpreters there that qualify for SIV with their family members. There's three hundred thousand. The the State Department's moving like two hundred a week, which would take one hundred and forty two years for it to actually happen. So mm-hmm. so uh, and, and so it's just not happening. But Abdul Abdul Safi was a commando, you know, special operations level guy. Uh, worked with a lot of SF guys. So those SF guys have really helped him move from Afghanistan to the United States. He went through 10 countries and they're moving him in houses, sending him money. He makes it to the Southern border uh, and he's coming to the United States to seek asylum. I mean, he had a rough journey to 10, to 10 countries he's went through, got accused of being a Taliban, got beaten uh, down in, down in Panama. He makes it to the Southern border, crosses the Southern border with a hundred other uh, Latin American people, you know, from, from Mexico and all over and he's the only one that gets arrested. And he's and he seeks us. He says, I'm, I'm an Afghan. I'm a commando. My my special forces buddies helped me get here. I'm seeking asylum from the Taliban. He's the only one that gets arrested. He gets arrested. They he he, he the White House responds back that he needs to contact his consulate, which by the way, we know is the Taliban. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the people we seek asylum from. And so we've really worked to bring public attention to it, wrote a letter to the White House. We've had like uh, I think. 10 organizations, nonprofits, including my own at Mighty Oaks Foundation, get behind it and say, you know, President Biden, like this guy, if you send him back to Afghanistan, he will be he will be executed for what he did for, uh, for our country. He is a Afghan commando, special operations trained. Uh, he has all the paperwork. It's not a question of who he is, like validated pictures with generals and stuff like that. Legit commando. Uh, and he's seeking asylum, which is why we have an asylum process. Uh, and so we're putting a lot, trying to put the pressure on the White House to do the right thing. And, you know, anybody listening, if you want to participate in that, call your congressman, your senator, uh, and Abdul Asafi is his name. Like, we we have to do the right thing. He'll, he'll be executed if he goes back. So he's in, is he, where is he now? He's just in the United States somewhere, or is he like he's, in a holding yeah, he's facility? Still, or? He's still, be, he's still, uh, he's still arrested and uh, in, in a holding facility and, uh, right. and still up in the air. I mean, as we know officially, he's being told he's going to be sent back. Wow. Um, but I, I personally believe that, you know, with the tension we have, it would, you know, it would be embarrassment politically for anybody to send it back and, and have them executed because we've, we've got a lot of tension on it. Um, so I know uh, Sarah Berardo, who is one of the big efforts behind the, the, our effort to do all the evacuations, she's she's been a big advocate for it. And, uh, you know, Mighty Oaks is behind him. And so we're 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 we're. We're trying to do the right thing for him, and uh, I think yeah. the American people. A lot. I know the media put out. A lot of people have contacted their congressman, and that's one of the best things you could do. Is you know, as a constituent, like you know, hey, congressman, like we we want to see the right thing done for our for our allies. Wow, jeez, amazing. And then you've you've kept going. You've guys. So Mighty Oaks Foundation has been working to get American citizens out of Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah. Well, originally went to Ukraine and. Uh, uh, we had somebody on the ground right before the invasion because we knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. The guy C spray that we talk about in uh, in the saving disease. Um, he's you know very experienced special operator from military and government agencies, and he he was on the ground there. And I went like a week after the invasion, got on the ground, and uh, initially we did rescue operations uh, because you know we uh, we kind of did. We uh, I was take a step back in in Afghanistan. We needed to rescue mass numbers because. No one can get in Afghanistan and do that. In Ukraine, people were able to drive across the border, open a bus door, load people up. So we, you know, 
what makes special operations special, you, you do things other people can't do. So we weren't trying to get the big numbers. We were trying to get people who were in positions the way they couldn't get rescued. And so we we're working uh, like handy. They had some handicapped people. We got some handicapped people out. They were stuck in elderly people, politically pe political people that couldn't move. And uh, I mean, our 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 political people, Americans, uh, that couldn't really move. They were stuck in in uh. And then if you're familiar with Benjamin Hall, the Fox News reporter, uh, we had got a call. Benjamin Hall was catastrophically wounded. Right, had about forty eight hours to live. He lost lost several limbs and an eye. And uh, and so we were able to go in and, and extract Benjamin Hall uh, from Kiev while I was under attack. Uh, the Russia at that time, Russia was trying to take Kiev, so it was under attack. We we went in to do that uh, uh, and, and actually successfully got him out. And then the next day, actually, Sasha, his his uh, his Fox News correspondent was killed. The only thing left of her is her arm. The two Ukrainian security guys were obliterated. And then Pierre, his cameraman of 25 years at Fox, he had, did a lot of stuff in Afghanistan and pretty amazing dude. He uh, he was killed. He, uh, a piece of shrapnel went through his leg. Um, and he, he was actually not as injured as as um, Benjamin Hall, but he was he took a piece of shrapnel right through the carotid. Um, and that, I mean, right through the memorial and bled out. And so we were not going to go back and get him because we weren't going to risk, you know, losing guys to go in, in the Kiev while I was under attack. But we uh we went we his wife showed up in Poland and was like hey I want my husband and we were a bunch of softies and we're like okay we so we went back and we got it got Pierre I actually drove him out in a hearse that he was in a hearse and we were gonna move him in our vehicle but he was like it was like he was like really respectfully put in there strapped down in his hearse and he had his coffin in there and we made sure it was him and and then uh, that uh he's Irish so they had an Irish flag like thrown in the back and you know our, our guys we put the stars over the head and the stripes down to their feet. And so I looked up on Google, like, how do you put it? And so we put the green, the orange, the, the white and the orange, okay. put it the right way. And then I was like, man, we can't, he's like, we have to take him back in his hearse. So I told the hearse driver, I'm like, hey, we're, we're going to buy your hearse. And he's like, well, it's not for sale. I'm like, you understand? Like, either I'm taking your hearse, I'm going to steal it from you, or we're buying it. So here's the here's Fox News on the phone, like, strike a strike a deal of your life. And uh, and so he sold his hearse to Fox News, and we and I, I drove him out uh, and back to his wife Michelle, and uh, was able to deliver him back with with dignity. And uh, so we stayed there and did some of that stuff. But now Mighty Oaks is going to the front lines uh, and and re and remote areas like we've been to like Kharkiv and Azum and Odessa, and we're helping the Ukrainian troops that are um, fighting for their freedom. I'm like, I I don't care about. I've been accused of like, why are you over there helping? Uh, Zelensky's corrupt and Ukraine's corrupt. And I'm like, so is every politician in history, including our own. Like, I don't care about the politics behind it. We care about helping people. And these people uh, don't deserve what's happening to them. No country deserves a world superpower coming in and firing ballistic missiles the size of telephone poles into apartment complexes and retirement communities uh, and, and using chemical weapons. These are these are legit war crimes. And these people are just, they don't care about war or politics. They care about go and milk their goat and tend to their form and living their way of life. And they want that back and they're fighting for their freedom and, and their way of life. And, uh, and so, you know, our heart's just there to help them. We, uh, we've been providing, we've been bringing medical equipment to them and then teaching them how to use it. So like the last trip, we brought a bunch of IFAX individual first aid kits that go inside their ballistic vests. And then we brought a, a 18 Delta instructor, which is special forces, medic instructor, a trauma doctor there to teach them actually how to use it. You know, mm. here's a tourniquet has how to use it. Here's a, here's a, you know, a depressure valve for overinflated young. Here's how you do a sucking chest wound, like actually teaching them how to use it because they don't know how to use any of this stuff. Mm. And uh, and then we use that report that we're building to to bring our Mighty Oaks Mental and Spiritual Resiliency Program and has really helped them to have the right mindset because most of these guys aren't professional soldiers. And, and so Mighty Oaks does that really well. 
And uh, we we brought these audio Bible tracks, which are like on little thumb drives, and we've given out thousands of those, and and just to help and encourage them, and just let them know that if anything else, let them know that people care. Yeah. You know, uh, that's, that that goes a long way sometimes too. To know you, they're like shocked, like why'd you come here from from America, like to come here? And it's like people care. Like uh-huh. um, I didn't buy this stuff. Like people donate to buy this stuff because people care about what you're going through, and uh, that's that's that goes a long way with them. So we've been doing that, and uh. And uh, it's been an amazing effort. Um, Mighty Oaks, Mercury One uh, has been a big partner with us with some of our resources, Samaritan's Purse, um, Save Our Allies is out there doing some great stuff. So, yeah, we uh, it's, it's been it's been a, it's been pretty humbling to to go out there and be able to help. Yeah, and uh, we're gonna keep doing it. Man, wild. Well, Saving Aziz is January seventeenth. It is out and. Um, is the, the first book then the first book also uh, unfair advantage? Um, is it man? It seems like these things to be movies. <laughs> well, uh, an unfair advantage was going to be picked up for a film, and uh, and then and then and then uh, COVID happened, and so it was kind of on the back burner. And then they were about to start again, and then this happened, and then and then save our saving Aziz got picked up already. Wow! Uh, so saving Aziz is picked up, uh, um, and it's already got fully independently funded. So it's uh, not not, in, not they're not trying to raise money for anything. It's it's funded, ready to go. And so right now they're they're uh, they're interviewing for a writer director, and then they're gonna get moving on it. And uh, you know it, it's gonna cover. I think like a lot of the Afghan evac stories, it'll cover the airport, but it's really gonna be a movie about you know, me and Aziz's relationship, that relationship between you know two brothers who were there for each other for all these years, and uh, and it's gonna go go all the way into the Tajikistan stuff, and just wanted to be a really encouraging movie of a. Uh, that it, that co- covers how many people actually came together yeah. uh, and did the right thing. Man. So yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty pretty excited about it, and definitely willing to share more offline with you about, yeah. about it. But it is it is going to be coming out. Uh, I'd say probably in like you know eighteen months to eighteen twenty four months as, wow. as a film. Amazing, amazing, uh, and gosh, that's what I mean. What a couple of years. What a what a. 25 years that you've uh that you've had but incredible and then people can also check out send me um a documentary that uh that um captures some of what you guys uh went through yeah. on the ground there the story behind uh the evacuation send me save our allies um and uh, yeah you've been busy man it's been a busy it's been a busy uh there's, uh, there's a quote that mother Teresa said that uh, you know that god will never give you more than you can handle I just wish you didn't trust me so much. <laughs> and that's kind of how I fantastic. felt this last two years. <laughs> that is fantastic. And there's one thing I heard you say um, in, in one of your interviews uh, it is about somebody they're asking you or you're hearing, you know, people say, hey, was it worth it? And uh, this answer that you gave, you said, it doesn't have to be worth it. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, it was, it was actually C-Spray that said that we were getting interviewed and, and I got it. I got asked the question before, you know, why are you doing it? Why are you helping these people that, not from your country, you don't even know them. And I think the simple answer is just the right thing to do, right? It's, yeah. and there's never a wrong time. I've heard this a long time ago. It's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And uh, if you have the ability to help, you have the ability to help someone in need, then you should. That should be a life principle. Like if you have the ability and someone's in need, then you should help and you should do the right thing. But then C-Spray's asked this other question and it really caught me off guard when he was asked, but is it worth it? And he said, it doesn't have to be, but right? it doesn't have to be worth it to do the right thing. And I think Oftentimes, especially in America, we we try to find an ROI on anything we do, right? We have to have a return on investment. I'll give my time, I'll give my money, I'll give my energy or something, but what am I getting out of it? What's the return on investment for it? And uh, and you know, I think sometimes you know we need to put that aside and say if it's the right thing to do, it doesn't have to be worth it. And that includes our, our personal safety and assurances, because I could tell you one of the biggest 
uh, one of the biggest bashings we got when we were doing this were people saying like, you guys are idiots. You guys are a bunch of cowboys. You, uh, you're going to get yourself killed. People are actually wishing death. People are like, I hope you guys die out there. Cause uh, then you'll learn, you'll get exactly what you're asking for. And people are saying all these horrible things. It's like, you don't realize, you don't think the group of us know that it's dangerous doing what we're doing. Of course we do. I got, I got, I got a wife at home. I got, I got three kids and grandkids. Like I don't want to die like doing this. Uh, but if we, when you feel compelled to do something, you know, sometimes you just have to do it. Not, I mean, I'm not, not a thrill seeker. One of the criteria I had for picking the 12 guys that came was none of them had to have that. Oh, I need to go get some like kind of yeah. attitude. Like right. they all guys that had already got some and they right. didn't, they weren't looking for that. Right. They were all experienced, mature adults that, that were not looking for any trouble, not looking to get themselves uh, hurt or killed. Uh, none of us wanted to get hurt, but it was like, you know, it was a good question, right? Is it worth it? And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to, there's no personal assurance or guarantees for our safety, but these people needed, needed someone to help. And unfortunately the governments of the world didn't. And so we did. And a lot of people aside from us made it possible to do that. And I'll forever be grateful for a grateful nation of Americans and, and people and our Jewish friends that made the donation people from around the world, uh, all the organizations that are part of it, uh, not just save our allies or mighty Oaks or independent, all of the, everyone that was involved. Uh, yeah. I'll forever be grateful that people stood up and did the right thing. Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing your story and for writing that book. And uh, man, I'm looking forward to the uh, the film. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's stay on. I want to hear some behind the scenes stuff. But thanks so much yeah, for yeah. Uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. man, thanks for all you do. Thank you so much, Jack. Take care, man. We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996, and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy Federal Credit Union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their Platinum Credit Card. It's their lowest rate card, and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy Federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases. Consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, where their members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Loans subject to approval, call one 888 842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. H-E-L-O-C APR as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. Black Rifle Coffee Company, the coffee that I drink every single day and powers me through my novels. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network for veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. 
This year alone, your support has helped Black Rifle Coffee Company expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022. All thanks to you. Purchase at BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation. They crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. First off, I get a lot of questions about this desk right here. And yes, it is a custom desk because it has the cross tomahawks burnt into the top here. And it is from badass dash workbench.com. So check them out. Awesome crew. Uh, they brought this thing out here in the back of a truck. It's got seats on all four sides that, uh, that swing out. It's just, just awesome. And it is solid. There's a reason it's called the badass workbench. So check them out for sure. And let's see. Oh, on that podcast I just did, uh, we talked a little bit about veteran suicide and this shirt. I just so happened to be wearing this shirt right here uh it says you matter and this is from the boot campaign so boot campaign once again awesome group of people out there and it's bootcampaign.org so be sure and go and check them out and support the great work that they are doing and 511 man thank you guys so much for sending out a nice little care package sincerely appreciated 511 tactical uh they'd made some Great sweatshirts for the Terminalist also for the Chris Pratt Terminalist series that came out this past summer. They had some Terminalist uh, sweatshirts. So, guys, thank you so much for hooking it up. Sincerely appreciated. SIG. All right. Right here, what is this? Well, this is the SIG P210. And this is the carry right here. So, like that's how you carry it. And bam. But check that out. This thing, solid. I love this pistol. <laughs> so uh, this might just end up being a new daily carry for me because it is so solid. Uh, but check it out, the P210, and you might find it in the pages of my next novel as well. So SIG, thank you. 
All right, Bill Rapier at Amtac Blades. Go to amtacblades.com. And uh, right here, this is the new blade right here. And look at that. Oh, yeah. Bill Rapier, of course, SEAL Team buddy. And right here, this is the Northman X right here. So love what Bill is doing over there. Amtac shooting, Amtac blades. Check them both out. Great sheath right here. And then, of course, the trainer. But uh, super important, other than uh, just having the blade, is training with a blade. So uh, be sure and hit up one of Bill's shooting courses, one of his blade courses. He's doing great stuff out there. So, Bill, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciated. Right here, bam, Amtac blades. All right. And speaking of former SEALs, right here, Nick Norris, Protect right here. And this, they do have a, a bunch of supplements, but right here, this is their sunscreen. So SPF 30, Reef Safe, right there. So go check them out. And that is P-R-O-T-E-K-T, Protect. Awesome. So Nick will be on the podcast here very soon. And Glenn Everly at Everly Stock, who has been on the podcast before, right here. This is the Gunslinger 2-pack. Uh, if you haven't listened to that podcast, Glenn Everly is an incredible guy, amazing story, so humble. Uh, I just love this company and uh, and what they're doing. So check out that podcast and uh, check out Glenn Everly and Everly Stock. Thank you, guys. All right. I think that is it for today. Take care out there. You know there are different grades of fuel for your vehicle, but did you know there's different grades of fuel for your mind? When your mind gets low-quality fuel, it gets easily distracted, fatigues quickly, and leaves you swamped in brain fog. But when it gets high-quality fuel that's packed with the electrolytes it needs to operate at optimal levels, your brain cells fire more quickly and efficiently, which keeps you focused, energized, and ready for anything. That's why Navy SEAL veteran Nick Norris created Protect Hydration. It's an electrolyte supplement that contains the optimal ratio of electrolytes your mind needs without any of the sugar, artificial sweeteners, or other junk it doesn't. And people love it so much, it sold out three times in 2022. They just got some back in stock right now. Danger Close listeners can get 25% off. Visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close and start giving your mind higher quality fuel Today. Once again, visit Protect, P R O T E K T dot com slash danger close for 25% off. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring and is available for pre order now. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead for a sneak peek. Find out more about my guest, Chad Robichaud, at Chad, C-H-A-D-R-O-B-I-C-H-A-U-X.com. And you can go to all his social media from there. But Instagram is Chad, C-H-A-D-R-O-B-O underscore official. But go to that website, hit all his social media there, and be sure and pick up his book, Saving Aziz which is on shelves January 17th. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Go to officialjackcar.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. You can also click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.